0: Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we know. I'm Cameron. I'm Michael. If you don't know about Game Studies Study Buddies, it's a show where we read game studies books from the academic discipline of game studies and try to make it useful for people that aren't uh, reading books all day like we are. (laughs)
1: Um,
0: uh, This is a really special episode, uh, I think. Um, You know, you can uh, contradict me here if I'm wrong, Michael. If you think this is just a normal episode, nothing special about it, if that's what you think... (laughs) Um we're doing a a pretty cool episode. This is an episode that you uh suggested, um a book that you suggested. This we are doing Mary Ann Buckles is 1985 dissertation. So this has never been published um as as a as a kind of a freestanding book, although it is uh, a dissertation that is uh openly available on Internet Archive and there's of course a link in the description to this episode if you want to check it out for yourself. You can also just Google it, but it is called Interactive Fiction the computer story game adventure right and and adventure here is not the the some sort of uh funny play on words literally adventure the crowther and woods um mm-hmm. uh, uh game michael uh why are we why are we doing this <laughs> uh we don't really do dissertations on here right that's like mm-hmm. that doesn't tend to be a thing that we do uh we tend to do fully published books um this is pretty far back in time, I don't know there there's kind of a story here, I think about how we decided to do this for the show uh yeah, so
1: back in may uh I noticed on twitter uh, someone uh only alicia k um uh, a rhetorician and academic responding to. Uh, the latest introduction to an issue of game studies where an Espen Arseth had specifically mentioned Buckles's work and how it had met resistance when it uh, came came about in 1985 right uh, she is writing on Adventure the Crowther and Woods game in 1985 which is really uh, uh, quite ahead of the curve and there's kind of a whole uh, story about Buckles and, and what happens with this dissertation and uh, you know normally in this show at the beginning when we're talking about a book we'll discuss the the author and kind of what are the other things that they've written and where are they now where are they teaching what other programs have they been in uh and buckles left academia Mm -hmm. uh uh she is it is it is kind of a a flashpoint of something in the sense that this is the first long-form investigation of uh, what is, I think, what a few people that I've read on this have called it is, like, the investigation of, like, video game aesthetics. Hmm. Uh, like, this is, this is I think, you know, unless there is something else out there, maybe, you know, in, in uh, non-English or something, uh, like, the first PhD dissertation on video games within kind of a, a like, artistic or cultural studies kind of context, um, this woman writes it, uh, it's not really well received by her department and uh, eventually she leaves academia uh, and she is currently uh, I, I don't know if this is actually still the case but uh, at least a couple of years ago she was working as a massage therapist uh, like mm-hmm. that's uh, you know kind of where her life took her she seems very happy there's a a, a, a interview that she did with oh God what's his name Jason Scott the internet mm-hmm.
2: Archive guy yep
1: um, uh so he he did a a kind of documentary on uh, early IF and this kind of thing, and he interviews her, and she sort of talks about uh, her experience leaving academia and all that. Uh, but uh, yeah, the 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 way that this kind of has come back, uh, this particular text, because it is it is truly just ahead of its time, right? Like 1985, I think is. Uh, one of those years. It, it's just before I think people are really going to start taking uh, uh, video games and their aesthetic seriously. And one of the things that Buckles talks about in that interview, uh, that really gave her trouble in in the process of writing this and then defending it and then sort of finding her way in academia afterward was that her committee just did not like the project. Uh, like they read text from Adventure that she gave them and they would say to her, you know, something, it seems to be along the lines of like, this is like such poor quality writing. Why are you writing a PhD dissertation on it? Mm -hmm. Um, And that actually, I think, uh, has an effect on the dissertation itself where there's a whole chapter kind of about this. uh, That's really, really fascinating. Uh, But, uh, you know, I was, so I, I had heard the name Buckles before, right? I had seen her cited, but I was not really aware of kind of this backstory to it. And so because of uh, this particular Twitter thread, I was just like, hey, like, if if the dissertation is available, let's do it for Game Studies Study Buddies. And it turns out it was available. And so we're doing it. Uh, if If this is someone who kind of got overlooked in her own time and has therefore uh been not uh totally overlooked by the field of game studies itself because she is getting cited uh but if the the ways that attention gets focused on her uh have tended to be maybe in passing or sort of like uh you know oh but Marianne Buckles wrote this in 1985 and now I can do my own thing what if uh, we just had a whole episode of this show that was about her dissertation and uh figuring out Uh, What were the ideas that she put into play before uh, a lot of the divisions that we're constantly bringing up here in game studies about, you know, ludology and narratology and all that? Uh, What sort of approach do you fashion for games and especially IF games prior to the emergence of like game studies as a field that can recognize itself in a mirror?
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's looking at the object and then trying to build the field around it kind of from first principles um, mm-hmm. because she doesn't have like a huge literature base to refer to, right? To kind of build mm-hmm. her argument from. In academia now, the what we do, especially you know, in game studies is whatever you're studying, you look for you know, whatever game you're looking at, you look for th- people who have written on that game first, right? And Try to see what's going on there. And then you kind of expand that. People have written on that game genre, maybe. And then you expand from that. People have written on maybe this kind of type of game broadly or this type of aesthetic experience broadly. Um, and then you go like even wider from that into like the furthest fields of abstraction of like, what is a game, <laughs> you know, and how mm-hmm. does this fit into it? Right. There's this kind of like widening, um, uh, I don't know, you know, series of questions that you're asking starting from as specific as you can get, you know, as far as reviewing the literature and then getting, getting pretty wide um but as you're saying what happens when we're looking at a dissertation that doesn't have all those tools right that is literally forging a field in some ways mm-hmm. um and and like you're saying yeah uh, i think buckles has come back in a pretty interesting way and been engaged with over the past five ten years uh you know i wouldn't say heavily but as you're saying in this kind of like remember that this dissertation exists you know that i think mm-hmm. that this um, Buckles' work is being is in the process right now of being resuscitated and rescued and um, talked about pretty heavily. Um, you know, because because that's part of the other uh, the other part of that Twitter thread that you're talking about from at only Alicia K. The Twitter thread is putting some pressure on this kind of position from the Game Studies Journal that Buckles is so important by looking at how many times that Buckles has been cited in game studies, and it was like three or four times. Something yeah, it like turns that. out within
1: that journal, she's been cited four times. One do. of them so, being that mention of her, I think, in that introduction.
0: So if it's so, if her work is so important and so critical for the field and so uh, intriguing, then why is this flagship journal actually not engaging with it as heavily mm-hmm. uh, as it would, um, you know, Janet Murray or Espen Arthas' Cybertext or you know Huzinga, These big names that we hold up. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's so important, then why is it not treated as being so important? The work that is, you know, if her contribution is so important, um, where is it? So, uh, we, you know, we're, we're trying to do our part here a little bit of digging into it and seeing what's going on with this dissertation um, and what kind of interesting arguments are happening here. And um, it's fascinating, I think. Um, sometimes when you go back to the 1980s and you read something, you think, oh, that's not that's not where it's at for me. This is <laughs> where it's at for me. I think that this dissertation is actually very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, did we, did, we, did we talk about the German literature thing? Did we say specifically that it's in German literature?
1: No, I don't think we did. So this is a PhD in, in German literature, which you might find surprising. Mm-hmm. Dear reader, listener, mm-hmm. whoever you are.
0: Michael, why would that be the case? Why would it happen in German literature, do you think? We haven't done any unique research on this, but we have some ideas here.
1: Mm-hmm. Well... Uh, looking at the people on the committee uh there are a couple of people who are germanists and oh actually also if you've never seen a dissertation before, actually, I'm sorry, I need to like What's back a
2: committee, up committee,
1: michael <laughs> um, so when you are in grad school um in the humanities, I think generally, but in the humanities specifically, you will have a committee which is a team of three or four uh senior academics who are the people who are responsible for reading your work, uh, providing feedback and criticism on it in kind of its preliminary stages, telling you like, oh, you're really actually overlooking, uh, such and such a person who you should, should definitely be citing that sort of thing. Or like, uh, here's where your argument might not hold w- water with other people in the field or people from this other field are going to come at you for this kind of thing. So here's how you head around that. This is ideally right. Well, uh, what is happening with a committee and, Then at the end of this whole mess, when you've written your dissertation, uh, they are the people that you defend your dissertation to. Uh, you go into a room and they ask you questions, uh, have you sort of justify certain decisions you've made, uh, or ask you about things that you may have still overlooked and see how well you can respond to that kind of questioning, um... And so on and so forth. And then at the end of your dissertation, at the end of your defense, when you've defended, uh, they will sign off on your dissertation. And so at the beginning of every PhD dissertation, uh, the names of the committee members are always listed. And so I looked up some of these people uh, and they were a mixture of uh, Germanists. I think there were like, there there are four people. I think two of them were Germanists. Uh, One was like an early modern francophone person. Um which is relevant. Uh, and then I think it's the, it's her fourth who was, I think in the computer science department. Um, and I believe she said in that interview that basically he was the only one who was on board with this project in kind of a real way, uh, sort of maybe uh, predictably, right? He, he likes to uh, hear about computers and, and how they're actually maybe good for things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that does not change the fact that Buckles is working in the German Studies Department, uh, which is, I I think, probably was in all but name at this time a comparative literature department. Because academically, um, or at least, you know, in the American Academy, uh, the department or field of comparative literature grows out of, like, German and Francophone studies.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting too. You know, just kind of like big, broad stuff. So, oh, so anyway, the the um, the dissertation uh, committee chair is like a Germanist. You were telling me, right? Just like a straight yes. up German studies, like appears know, to have
1: only published articles and books literally in German.
0: Hmm. And Buckles has a an MA right in German studies, something like I that. I think so. It's I mean, on,
1: she quotes she quotes German authors untranslated uh, multiple times in this dissertation
0: yeah but yeah so it's kind of a weird even in its formation um and in the way that it kind of makes its way into the academic world it, it, it's coming from a, an angle that perhaps is is surprising um mm-hmm. oh the other the other thing that's interesting here is that we do think i think um you know in the history of Literature, uh, media studies fields, and the, and the broad melange that is the the places that we talk about th- this kind of thing. I think that we think of the 1970s and the 1980s as like the moment where theory, like capital T theory, you know, Derrida and, mm-hmm. and the like. <laughs> you know those, Lacan. <laughs> um, where theory is dominant, uh, you know, and really having like a huge sway on the American Academy, not here. This is like a, a non-theory, no theory allowed. Mm-hmm. This is like literary studies straight up, like people talking about what narrative is, people talking about what the aesthetics of reading are. There's a little bit of reader response theory that shows up, or actually a lot of reader response theory that shows up. But I will, of course, make you explain that when we get there yeah. as someone holding the literature PhD. But okay, I think that's all the setup uh, that we need. But it is an interesting setup, I think, for understanding the document that's in front of us. Um, can I tell you that the acknowledgements hit me pretty hard in a, in a pretty wild way?
1: I started reading this before you, and when I was reading these acknowledgments, I was thinking, like, Cameron's going to have so much to say about these acknowledgments,
0: and here we are. I will try to not say too much about it, uh, but it is pretty shocking to me, so um, it's a, to a dedication, you know, there's acknowledgments, and there there's these uh, kind of, here are the people who helped me along the way, that's a big common part of dissertations, and uh, there's an acknowledgment of, of someone named Jack, and this is what Buckles writes. You shared all-nighters with me, in awful EECS-70, sat through Star Trek 1, 2, 3, Tron, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, Dark Star, and War Games for a chapter I never wrote, helped me with the technical side of the dissertation, boosted my spirits when they were way down, way down, and helped me along every stop of what at times seemed a torturous path. Thank you from my heart, which is just a lovely acknowledgement here. But it is very clear, reading this acknowledgement and then reading the rest of the dissertation, that there was going to be a chapter on science fiction and its relationship mm-hmm. to games here, because mm-hmm. she mentions it a few different times, um, which is um, it's blowing my mind. For, for if this is your first time listening, I've been working on and, and 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 currently in the peer review process for a book on science fiction games, um, of which there's been a lot of work over the years, but there's no real like big monograph. You know, there's no big Singular book that is just about science fiction games. Um, I think actually there's a few coming out, which is really exciting. Mine being one of them. And uh, hopefully being one of them. And it is amazing to me that with just a little bit of a time, you know, a change in history, right? The smallest amount of not cutting a chapter that the first work in game studies, the first published, you know, academic dissertation on game studies could have been on science fiction and games. Mm -hmm. like talk about the science fiction thing right like this alternate universe that just is like (laughs) the the only thing i care about right not the only thing but a huge thing i care about could have been the core of the discipline but um you know what could have been but but science fiction shows up quite often here and i'm really excited about that and i'm really i'm really glad that we read this so that when i'm in the revision for my book i can go back and and kind of talk about this uh, dissertation in it because lot of there's a lot of stuff going on here in this dissertation where buckles is talking about like what games do that are very similar to what i talk about when people talk about like what games do um but she is talking about it in a much more formative way than someone like james paul g for example Mm -hmm. we'll later on talk about it um you know from a slightly different discipline so really excited about that i thought that was really fun um And uh, the only other thing here that's kind of in this like preface acknowledgement thing is that uh, she says that Adventure is basically a bunch of comic strip characters talking to each other, that it works like a comic strip that I thought was pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, no, it's uh, really interesting how I think there are so many lines of thought in this dissertation That are things that people pick up later, even if it's not a dissertation that they've read or know about. Uh, Buckles is here at the beginning, and she highlights like actual legitimate, like entire tracks within game studies that other people end up having to rediscover or reinvent. Um, And it's just it's fascinating in that way to see kind of uh, these glimmers of future scholarship in this dissertation from
0: 1985. Mm -hmm. It often. um written in such a way that it that there's obviously more fundamental in some ways cuz she's kind of again working from first principles like looking mm-hmm. at the thing and just having to say well I guess this is how it works but it um I don't know it feels uh, it, uh, in some ways it feels uh more clean and clear. I think this is a very clearly written dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um And that could come from the kind of language studies uh in in literature angle right of like if you're if you're if you're writing um work that is meant to address multiple languages um i feel like there is a a desire for clarity maybe in that work sometimes uh let's jump into the introduction michael what sticks out to you in the introduction this is a pretty classic introduction in that it really does lay out the whole argument Mm -hmm. What, what do you think
1: um i mean so she's like hey uh here is what interactive fiction is because again it's 1985 and there's a a good deal of people who just are not familiar with video games conceptually or if they are then they think of video games as kind of purely graphical uh, uh diversions and so uh buckle's kind of gets the lay of the land here saying interactive fiction is similar to traditional fiction uh and i'm going to stu- it, but it you know has Uh, kind of multi-form that's not her word that's the word that uh janet murray comes up with but uh you know it is a type of fiction that uh can have different outputs based on the reader player input essentially this becomes kind of what what sort of the the hinge for uh interactive fiction is is that there is at some point Uh, a moment where the reader is going to give input to a program that is then going to use that input to continue the story uh, either to the next point or to like a kind of failure state or something like that Um, so we have that one half, that there's a kind of computational or, or uh, you know, digital uh, angle here in terms of how text is being stored, uh, transmitted, and uh, presented for the reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, it is text. It is language. And on that, Buckle says, uh, we can approach this with the toolkit of literary studies. Um, literary studies already gives us all of these ways for thinking and talking about how literature works. And so in theory, uh, we should be able to transport some of these tools to interactive fiction to talk about that uh, while also maintaining kind of uh, awareness of what is unique about interactive fiction as a format. Um, there's also, and this is a big theme kind of throughout the dissertation of the uh, There's also a kind of uh, defense of the very idea of interactive fiction, of computer games, and of taking them seriously. Uh, A a claim that is repeatedly made throughout this dissertation is that these things can be uh, what Buckles calls morally grounded, um, which is probably something we'll talk more at length about in in a later chapter. But essentially, this idea that uh, games can present, and especially sort of these interactive fiction games, can present players with situations where even though they are comic strips, even though these are kind of all these comic strip characters talking to one another, uh, it activates a sort of moral sensibility in the player as they try to evaluate. uh, I mean, my favorite example of this is uh, the player who is trying to decide whether or not she's trying to, or whether or not she's going to put the dwarf in the bird cage.
0: Yeah. Or if she can, right. She's trying so hard. This is like from later in the, in the dissertation, but yeah, she's she's talking to some player, right? Or is mm-hmm. is viewing uh, um like watching someone play, I guess, right? And mm-hmm. this person has a the bird cage you can pick up and is just constantly trying to put this dwarf in it in <laughs> order like to uh you know non-violently solve the problem. Basically. right because the dwarf is throwing axes at the player <laughs> yeah yes and the whole time the dwarf is just continuing to throw axes at her and she's just <laughs> constantly trying to be like get in the bird cage come in like you know the prompt is, is like you know you can't put the dwarf in the bird cage and she's like get dwarf you know <laughs> <laughs> cage dwarf but you know like constantly prompting this machine to put the dwarf in there but it won't do it right because because um from from Buckles' perspective, the way you explain this is that the game does not have like a moral element to it. It is not thinking about what is right and wrong and like multiple different pathways to solve this problem. It's like a puzzle and mm-hmm. there's just the way to do it And you know, in the same way you do Sudoku, right? There's not a moral element to Sudoku. There mm-hmm. is just the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it um and so so and and yeah later on in the dissertation that like there's a this apparently prompts a long-form conversation between the player and her boyfriend mm-hmm. and or, or or just a guy she's playing with maybe um and and he he apparently is like this is why people are constantly walking all over you it's because you it's <laughs> yeah. because you're always trying to cage the dwarf and it's like oh gosh like and and so that's buckles that's a, this kind of um invitation for buckles to say well you see games have this kind of moral prompting element to them even if they are not morally grounded quote-unquote and so it kind of uh, plays both sides of the the question um because ultimately what's happening here right is that uh buckles is trying to do two things right she's trying to answer the question what is adventure right like Mm -hmm. what is a text adventure game period right but what is adventure you know the the classic game colossal cave adventure what is it and then what does it do mhm <laughs> which is like kind of wild these are these are questions that um well well this gives you a a really good insight into how much buckles is ha- having to create theory for herself mm-hmm. because for for now, right, this is the kind of universal abstracting function that people like Hozinga and Kalwa and Suits have for us, like in our academic thing. When we go to answer this fundamental question to then analyze a game, we can just go, all right, well, Hozinga t- tells us that games are this, and Kalwa tells us that games are this, and Suits tells us that games are this, and so here's what a game is. Ha ha, we know what it is. So if a game is this, then therefore this game that I'm analyzing does X, Y, Z. Right. Mm -hmm. Like like the way that academia uh, has has uh, progressed or game studies in particular is that we have found our kind of foundational universals. And you can go and look at our episodes about at least the first two of those in order to kind of get a sense of how well, you know, you and I, Michael, think about how those universals function. But, uh, you know, that kind of ontological question, you know, what is a game? Mm hmm we we now have references to and buckles actually cites both of these people i'm not saying that that doesn't happen here but um buckles is trying to look not at previously existing theory on play for the most part she's trying to look at the moment where a human being is entering text into this machine what then is it Mm -hmm. and then kind of move and then what does it does more what does it do morally or whatever and which puts her in a weird corner i think actually later on but um some of the distinguishing things here, uh, I, th- I think probably you have more to say about this, but um, w- one thing I want to shout out here really quickly is that she cites Ian, uh, Ian Livingstone's Dicing with Dragons um, in order to talk about, you know, is an interactive fiction game, you know, is Colossal Cave Adventure, is it uh, like Dungeons and Dragons, and she said, you know, she she makes some kind of clarifying remarks that it kind of is like it. And if you're familiar with those games, you kind of bring some assumptions in with you, but it's kind of not, in that it's not responsive and all these different things. Now, um, I just have to share here that Dicing with Dragons was my own entree into like tabletop role-playing. Oh. Um, yeah, I, I was probably eight, nine, ten, somewhere in there. I was really young. And I bought um. I I don't know why I think well because I I I think I do know partially why. Uh, my my dad was really into like dragons and shit. I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> like it j- just was. He has got like has like a big. My my, my uh, dad has a few tattoos, but the he has two large tattoos. I don't think I'm I'm telling tales out of school here about my own dad. I think uh, he's got two big tattoos on his back. One is a dragon, and one is one of the mutated chickens from Gamma World. Great. Yeah, so that's a little a little bit of biographical information about about me. I don't share a lot of biographical details, but so so I I grew up seeing these <laughs> tattoos, right? Um, and and so, but it, I don't know how this happened, but I remember being in a used bookstore and I remember where it was, and they had like a D and D section, and I must have known what that was, but all the all they had in the D and D section was um two copies of Dragon magazine from like the early nineties. And I bought both of those, and because they were like a dollar each. And then uh, this uh, Ian Livingstone book, Dicing with Dragons, which is a fascinating book. And I've actually uh, su- thought about suggesting we do it on the show, but I think it might be too light. I think it might not be like worth our time in some ways. But so the first half of it is just explaining what the hell a tabletop game is. <laughs> like, what is it? But like for like, if you were buying like a relative, uh, like a Christmas gift, right? Like It's mm-hmm. not, not like a scholarly investigation or anything. It's just like, well, you sit down at a table and then there's a fantasy world in your mind, <laughs> like that level. <laughs> and then the back half of it is like a choose your own adventure story that's trying to give you a feeling for like what it would be like to sit at the table. If you've never played before and you're trying to figure out how, well, here you go. And then it's kind of got like, in addition to that, some basic like um, D&D like rules. So it's like, you, you might spend gold on an inventory. You might, mm-hmm. you know, do all this kind of stuff. And so it was, like, hugely important for me in, like, being just a kid who, like, in a rural area with no one to play these kinds of games with, right, of being like, holy crap, there's, like, this whole thing going on over here. Um, there's dragons and all kinds of dice and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but a huge thing. So it's really interesting to me that like when Buckles is trying to find like the citation to explain what the hell these games are, that she also goes to this like popular press explanatory book. Cause it, it's probably the only thing that she can grab, you know, mm-hmm. that has kind of a theorization of it at the time. So, Long story for for me there, but really interesting, I think, to see that show up here as the, a kind of distinguishing mark between the more kind of free-flowing work that D&D is doing and something that's a little bit more uh, constrained, like a, a you know a programmatic adventure game. Um, what, what else is interesting here for you, Michael? Well, I think uh, your story uh, is a
1: good entree into this in that the other thing that I think is really cool about Buckles' argument is how collaborative it is. Mm-hmm. where she is kind of looking into uh, Dungeons and & Dragons, and she's like, is Dungeons & Dragons like this? Well, yes and no, right? She She's not saying, it's not, dun- like, Dungeons & Dragons is not what I'm talking about. Don't talk to me about Dungeons & Dragons. Like, I have something else going on. Um, she is very willing to use similarity and difference between things to kind of refine her categories. Mm-hmm. Um Because, the, I mean, a couple of other things that get talked about here in the introduction. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, sort of, uh, and this is a move that uh, later scholars in game studies, and I'm thinking particularly of like Espen Arseth and and Janet Murray, who are working on very similar topics, uh, they're going to come back to this. uh, And it's a thing that Buckles did first, is sort of point out that Uh, these types of games, these sort of interactive narratives grow out of uh, genre literature and genre conventions. Uh, There's a a sort of uh, way that Stevenson's Treasure Island, which she points out was sort of inspired, like Stevenson got the idea or sort of like his idea for that novel grew out of him actually drawing the map of Treasure Island and sort of thinking about like the story that could be told there. Uh, And she parallels this with uh, the fact that Colossal Cave Adventure starts as a project to digitally map the Colossal Cave in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it takes it does it does a similar move where it takes a map and then uh, fabulates around it. Um, The other thing that she points out is that uh in terms of like writing and prose style uh you know there's there's like all these uh things drawn out of traditional fantasy literature in tolkien and there's a, a bit where she uh explicitly like reads uh uh the scene where sam and frodo see mount doom for the first time against uh the scene in adventure where the player comes into a room where there's like a i think a dormant or just about to be active volcano or something. And she points out like the echoes between these passages, uh, to show how genre literature is having these, these influences on the form. Um, and how that, uh, also establishes conventions for the form that mean that people who are interested in genre literature are going to understand adventure more quickly than people who do not read that sort of stuff. There's the, it's like a, it's using a vocabulary that uh, is established for a certain subset or a certain demographic, uh, and this allows them to, uh, you know, sort of push past the initial weirdness of whatever the hell is going on in adventure, what this object is, and kind of figure out, like, okay, like, here's a dwarf, he's going to attack me because he doesn't want me to take his treasure, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing that's, I think, sort of important is that uh, she... Uh, corrects against the reader is in control uh, narrative around interactive fiction, right? Like now the reader is in control and they've taken the place of the author, Mm -hmm. which is kind of this very uh, uh, loose and airy and and, and effervescent argument that sometimes maybe gets made, but also is usually a kind of argument that you say other people are making. Mm -hmm. Um, And here she's not really reacting against much of anyone except for uh, Nice in Holland or Nice. I'm not sure how to say his name, um, who I think do uh, lean a little in like, well, now the leaders, the the readers in control uh, direction. But she points out and says, well, actually, right. Uh, there is kind of a database of possibilities for this story. And what the reader is doing is choosing which one is going to happen next. Uh, so it's kind of the illusion of control, she says. Uh, so she doesn't have kind of that naive reading of interactive fiction, even here at the beginning. Um let me think there's she talks about choose your own adventure books which were like new at this time yeah Uh,
0: well it blows my mind because i you know i have always thought and this is like so incorrect like obviously incorrect but in my mind I've, i've always been like oh yeah choose your own adventure books existed and then video games come along and they're like oh yeah we can replicate choose your own adventure books like, okay. and that's just, I've never thought about this history at all in my head. But obviously that is wrong. <laughs> it's the flip is that adventure games come along and then choose your own adventure books are like, oh yeah, we could do that. Uh, and I know that there are <laughs> yeah. choose your own adventure books that predate, uh, you know, um, the creation of the text adventure, but, you know, the the franchise in particular that she talks about here um, explode during the 1980s in particular. Um, mm-hmm. So So, you know, there's obviously... Um, some massification that happens after um, after the text adventure is is invented.
2: Yeah,
1: um, and then another thing that she points out uh, that that was fascinating to me. There's, you know, you have your moments of fascination with this with this dissertation, and so do I. And where it's uh, gets fascinating for me is when she brings up Elizabeth Eisenstein, the early modernist scholar, hmm. uh, because she buckles is looking well, her thesis, her her basic sort of background thinking is like, well. Whatever adventure is, whatever this type of literature is, it's happening because of the computer. And so uh, the computer is kind of changing the ways that literature can be thought of, uh, expressed, produced, and consumed. Uh, this seems to me, you know, somewhat resonant of uh, the spread of the printing press in, in uh, early modern Europe. And so she looks into re- she looks into early modernist scholarship and finds that at this time, and I she's I guess she's correct. I was thinking about it. Uh, she can really only find Elizabeth Eisenstein's book "Printing Press is The Agent of Change," which is from 1979, and I would say kind of uh, really marks the foundation of a kind of strand of early modernist uh, scholarship that does look closely at the mechanisms and sort of material practices of printing and uh, how those technologies spread and changed. Hmm. Uh so she finds that she also finds Marshall McLuhan who who makes similar arguments but she does not use him as much because he is quote jumbled and emotion charged <laughs> which is not wrong. <laughs> Uh, but it's just sort of amusing to see, uh, kind of basically McLuhan and Eisenstein come up against each other and, and Buckles is like, yeah, Eisenstein
0: is the one who's going to be useful for me here. Mm -hmm. Um, and also very funny. I mean, how stereotypical of a Germanist to be like. Marshall McLuhan is too emotion charged. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like if you if you're familiar with like German literary studies or or like uh that kind of mode very uh austere I think is mm-hmm. a is a, a a nice word to put for it but uh McLuhan is too I mean and yeah you're right that's absolutely true. Um I want to go back really quickly to um to one other thing that, that I think is really helpful in like a useful thing for people to take from this, um, this kind of argument that you were talking about that again, gets kind of replicated or remade with Espen Arseth and Janet Murray's work and and quite a lot of work actually in game studies, which is that, uh, previously existing genres kind of prime us for, you know, the invention of, and then the accessibility of video games. So, you know, Mm -hmm. our familiar familiarity with fantasy, our familiarity with science fiction, is uh, the thing that makes it go, you know, that makes mm-hmm. games kind of work in some ways. And um, this is something, This is an argument I make in my book, but this is, uh, fully exists uh, within the work of Samuel Delaney in his um, mm. and his work on the paraliterary. And his work on the paraliterary, particular in relationship to science fiction, um, Delaney says that actually the kind of defining quality of science fiction has nothing to do or very little to do with like, um, uh, you know, the, what shows up there, right? Like rocket ships or Mm -hmm. uh you know or fantasy like swords and and sorcery, that kind of thing. Doesn't really have anything to do with like the content there. It has to do with the mode of reading. So so you get primed by the way that you read it and the way that you're thinking about the objects in front of you. And that kind of universe of thought that you have creates an entire uh kind of apparatus of comparison for you. Right. So Mm -hmm. like if I give you a short story, if I give you the Great Gatsby and tell you it's science fiction Well, you might have some question marks and eventually you might get to the point where you're like, no, but you could reasonably read it for a little while thinking of like, oh, okay. I wonder what the turn is going to be here. Right. I wonder Mm -hmm. what the weirdness is going to be here. And Delaney says there's a bunch of genres that work this way, particularly pornography. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pornography is the kind of thing where normal stories are happening and then suddenly. Right. It takes (laughs) a turn into something else and you can be primed toward that or primed to not thinking about that. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, uh I I think that you can watch uh, plenty of movies, right? Like plenty of films, and I could be like, this is pornographic. And you would be like watching it, and you'd be like, okay, yeah, I get it. Or I could say, this is art cinema, Michael. This is is European art cinema. And you would go, ha, 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 this is never pornographic. (laughs) Um, But video games kind of work in the same way, right? There's this inherited kind of framework uh, that works in the same way uh, as fantasy or science fiction or whatever. So it's not even just the genre trappings. It's the kind of framework of thought of approach. Um, and that's what Buckles is kind of hammering on here is that if, if I tell you that adventure is a fantasy game, you are going to make way different decisions in it. than if I tell you it is a realistic game about uh cave exploration, um, you know, uh, cause she reads the, uh, the um, encounter with the snake a few times. Right. And that people who thought it, who think that it functions like a realistic, like cave exploration adventure, try to resolve that in ways that, uh, that people who know it's a fantasy game don't. Um, (laughs) So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Right. I, I forget what the exact solution there was, but the one for the dragon is particularly funny where you can just tell the narrator to kill the dragon and it'll, with your, with its bare hands, it'll just do it. Yes. Uh, Yes. uh, that's very that's very good to me um the other thing here is the scientific method we haven't ha- we haven't brought that up do you, do you want to talk about the scientific method or do you want do you want me to talk about this
1: uh I mean you have the better quote on it, so I'm just going to read your quote okay. um This is another uh sort of piece of the the moral grounding puzzle that I mentioned uh where on page four of the dissertation Buckle says quote. To read interactive fiction is to practice the philosophy of science in an artificial, restricted, imaginary world. Truth is determined by observing and analyzing events, distancing oneself from uh, one's own preconceptions, testing whether one's interpretation of the events is actually correct, and forming a new interpretation if it is not. So I think that's a very good kind of... uh uh, distillation of what she means when she is talking about the scientific method uh in games or in, in interactive fiction at least mm-hmm. uh but the the move that this dissertation makes that the overall argument makes um and one that I'm not sure that I you know buy is a, a sort of sense that the scientific method is inherent in the process of playing interactive fiction mm-hmm. uh because it, because on one level i see why this argument is being made because uh, what she just described is kind of the way that it feels to play a video game right think of something like portal which you know makes this thematic where you walk into a room and you have your abilities you have your verbs you can open this type of portal and that type of portal here's the layout of the room uh let me futz around until i have solved the puzzle. Um. But I would also not say that what is happening in Portal is the scientific method. What is happening is you are learning the language that Portal has. Uh, And sort of similarly, I would not go so far as to say that, like, uh, adventure teaches the scientific method uh it teaches you whatever the adventure method is right the 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 yeah, point where you finally just ask the narrator to kill the dragon and it does so is not that scientifically methodologically sound i would say um but i think and you you may or may not uh, uh, agree on this point um i think you know it's part of buckles's very tough position of trying to justify like her her study of these things and what are they doing uh, and what good could they be for people? Because um, I think that's a that's a real pressing question for her uh, uh, throughout, and that's something that actually came up in in the interview is that she said, uh, you know, one of the reasons she wanted to write about these was that she had she had the sense that these things were changing the ways that people thought and the ways that people lived their lives, um, and so on. The one hand, I can kind of I see, you know. I see you could make a game that teaches you the scientific method, but that does not mean that every game, or that games sort of intrinsically are going to teach you the scientific method. Uh, the other thing yeah. that I want to point out here, because we've we've done it for, like, you know, Arseth and, and Murray, is, uh, this is Colin Milburn's argument in Mono yep. Nando.
0: 100%. Well, it's also my argument in my own book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but slightly different, and I agree with you. I think that this is, um, I think Buckles is, like, figuring it out with the tools that she has at the time um but because this that quote that you read right and and the kind of core claim being made here about the the about what games do what adventure does to like people it is the fundamental claim of game studies i think that that it is uh it is shocking i mean i'm, I'm doing this work in my book this is not all a promo for my book it's just really surreal to me to read this fundamental originalist you know kind of text for game studies and seeing so much of my my own thought uh, and so much of game studies and me responding to game studies like happening here um, but I think what she's saying here is a fundamental truth I, I think almost everyone makes a version of this argument in game studies which is that games do something to you right like games have the capability or capacity to teach things to human beings and that capacity is determined by how it, it gives you a theory of empiricism. Meaning, how do games give you feedback for what you perform in their fictional worlds? Mm-hmm. Um, and right, so you're right. Absolutely. This is this is Milburn, and Milburn's saying when games run into real science, then that creates all this weird stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's particularly that's in the in Mondo Nano. People can go listen to that episode, but that's also really heavily pushed in. Um, respawn the sequel and in fact uh colin milburn and melissa wills have published a paper in the uh, special issue on science fiction games that um that darshana jaymane and i just did um uh, for science fiction film and television and that's them talking about citizen science games and it's the same argument a very similar argument here um but you can go you can look at procedural rhetoric you can look at janet murray on the kind of relationship between the player and the um the cyber barge, right? Like mm-hmm. all of these people, I, 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 you know, I've done the massive survey of the literature. Everyone is in agreement that games do something to people. And the, and the question is, what exactly is the output of that, right? Is it, mm-hmm. is it purely aesthetic? Is it instructional? That's going to be someone like James Paul G, right? Who's, who's saying that games teach you how to do things in the world. Um, and, and, uh, that, that even goes all the way to the kind of overtly celebrationist literature, um, like, uh, Jane McGonigal, right. Of like games can warp the fabric of reality for you in a right. way that it, that, that can, um, you know, from her perspective, be very helpful. And I'm, I'm a little bit, um, more cynical about it than that. But everyone agrees on this, right? The, the the I think I'm I'm in agreement with you, though, here. I, I think that Buckles gets the framework wrong here a little bit because it's not, I don't think, and I don't think many people think this, it's not the scientific method because we're not, like, hypothesis testing constantly. And if we are, we're doing it implicitly, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think the snake's going to bite me. Oh, the snake didn't bite me. That's interesting. Um, I think I could jump over the snake. I can't jump over the snake. Well, that's interesting. I could probably jump over a snake in real life. And so that kind of leads to what you're saying of like adventure telling you how to communicate in its language. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that what she, what she's pointing out here, which I do think is right, is that games give you a kind of um, created or artificial empirical universe. And you have to figure out what is the feedback of that empirical universe. Um, And, So In games period, we begin to develop, I think players in a broad sense, begin to develop this kind of broad reference framework in the same way that we bring genre with us, right? We bring gaminess with us of what are the rules of the particular thing that's in front of us and how do we test them and how do we get particular forms of feedback from it? That's not mm-hmm. the scientific method to me um, in, in a broad sense. That is just like empirical reality. <laughs> and mm-hmm. But I do think that's really interesting because it does throw out in what she gets to, I think, is that it means that we don't have just a bunch of ideal categories, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have, okay, we live in a moral universe. And so that moral universe means that I should be able to cage that dwarf that's throwing axes <laughs> at me, right? It, it yes. means that we have to be responsive constantly to the world around us. We have to be thinking, what are the ways that reality might um, fictionally warp in ways that I am not prepared for uh, mm-hmm. in front of us? And that, I think, is really interesting. And that ultimately, if you're very curious about what's going on there, that is the whole point of my book on science fiction and games. So, um, you know, keep an eye out for that in I don't know when it's coming out at some point. Hopefully mm-hmm. it continues to go through peer review. But So I think that, you know, I'm, I'm of, of two minds here, right? Uh, on one hand, I'm I'm fully in agreement with Buckles because I think Buckles at the origination or one of the origination points of game studies here has tuned into something in very clear language that is implicit in the rest of game studies. And I mm-hmm. cannot overstate that. I, I really do think it's very hard to find people who are not making some form of this argument. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I'm 100% exactly with you that I think that the way that this is argued and the kind of terms that it's using... Are perhaps um, not expansive enough to really get at what's going on here, um, mm-hmm. but I love that it's here, and I love that this is kind of like this fundamental argument that so many people have spent so many words replicating when it, it was right here in one really powerful sentence that we can quibble with, but is is pretty self-contained and and uh, virulently running through a lot, 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 ninety-nine percent of you know game studies literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to go to chapter one? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll probably, I mean, we worked
1: through basically the whole argument of the dissertation here at the top, and I think uh, it will be pretty quick to go through uh, the next couple chapters. So, for instance, after the introduction, uh, chapter one, Adventure as a Game, um, is really just Buckles, like, trying to explain to the reader, who has probably not played Adventure, like, in, in the most basic sense, what the hell this thing is not in like the ontological, Oh, what is a game way? But just like, <laughs> yeah. how do you use a computer? Right. Uh, Cause this is, this is a point in time where uh, computers like campus computer networks, um, you know, computer terminals are all on the same network. And so people are playing adventure because it is hosted on the campus network and you can, uh, you know, log into it or like pull it up from whatever terminal you have. Uh, And so she's trying to sort of explain this. Uh, She mentions that there tends to be a kind of uh, uh, both kind of age and implicit kind of class disparity because she also talks about, you know, when we think of games, we think of children play when we think of computer games, especially we think of children being the most interested in these. Uh, But in fact, when it comes to text text adventures, it's usually older people who like to play these. Uh, And very often they are uh, you know, well-educated in the sense that they are on college campuses and therefore have access to these computer terminals where they can call up adventure. Um, and so she says it's basically a, a narrative program uh, that is formulated in such a way to uh, appear generic, uh and appeal to a certain audience in ways that we've already talked about, right? To to call in certain uh, clear tropes from fantasy fiction, from Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, so people who come to adventure will know, okay, I, I am operating in this type of world, or I should expect, uh, you know, magic or treasure or or this kind of thing. Um, but otherwise, and this is very important for Buckles, uh, the game doesn't really give you any rules. Like the 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 first challenge of the game adventure is figuring out how to play the game adventure. Like even how down to the point of like how to work with the parser, how to talk with the narrator to walk, you know, a few steps forward and get into the little well house that you need to get into to start the game.
0: Well, so I I think one thing that's here. Uh, well, so I guess two things. the The first thing is that. Uh, something maybe we didn't flag is this, this reads like a dissertation from the 1980s in a broad sense, which is that the intro, as you're saying, it gives us the whole argument. And then for the most part, there is just proof. Like the rest of this, this whole dissertation is proof that that argument is actually true, like moving kind of step by step. Um, and so, yeah, like you're saying, I think we're going to move pretty quickly through it. I think we're going to talk about interesting arguments um, I think this is maybe a place to talk about one of the interesting arguments because on page thirty-seven, Buckles makes this alignment here. Um, so this is in chapter one, this adventurous game. These are actually not numbered um, the chapters, but so Buckles says that there's an uh, 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 an interesting quality here because films and TV are are passive media. You sit there and you watch it and mm-hmm. look. You know, there have there has been. A lot of ink spilled over the years about how interactive are various media. We're mm-hmm. not going to get into that right now, right? I know there's a, been a lot of writing over the past ten years or so about like questions of of games being privileged because they are interactive is perhaps false because people are active readers of films or active viewers of films and TV. That's absolutely true, l- l- but let's bracket that for now. So Buckle says that there is that films and TV are passive. And that reading and games are have they, they require work, right? They're they're quite interactive because you're having to do the the kind of moment by moment putting together that universe in your head, right? Mm-hmm. And and Buckle, there's a lot of assumptions here about like images are, are are a thing that come prepackaged and words are not prepackaged. And you know, I, I don't think really Buckles gets granular enough here. But this is ergodicity. hmm Right? This is like the construction of the thing, of the, of the work of doing the thing within this kind of uh, packaged capability. Right, This kind of, I don't, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, the, the, the work of doing it. This is maybe a place to talk about um, uh, cyber text because mm-hmm. Michael and I went and did this a little bit of research over the course of this uh, or preparing for this episode of like, oh, this is interesting that Buckles is doing so much stuff that kind of gets, um, redone later. And so I went, for example, to look at, uh, Hamlet on the holodeck, um, for references to buckles and I didn't find any. Now I was just with a pretty quick control F, you know, looking through the book. Maybe there is a reference to buckles. I didn't catch or It's in a footnote that didn't happen, but I kind of scanned through, didn't see it. I don't have a physical copy with me uh, here in my home office, so I couldn't look there. So that might not be true. I didn't, I, but I think that buckles doesn't show up so we went to the other kind of like big you know uh foundational text for for our current wave of game studies i guess current universe of Mm -hmm. game studies to cyber text and they're actually uh, you were finding michael that there are lots of references to buckles um but they're weird they're
1: they're strange um so there may be i would say let me just count these out
0: uh one two three four five I really want you to be like 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20,
1: 21, 22. It's, I mean, it's it's just about seven, there are seven uh, sort of full entries for buckles um, in the index of cybertext. You know, some of them, like some of them are one page, some of them encompass multiple pages uh, uh, where he's dealing kind of more specifically with like lines of her argument. Um, But a lot of them are just kind of, you know, like, the uh, Buckles says this, right? Little quote from Buckles citation and, and sort of moving on. Um but then there are a few that are pretty strange, and one of the first ones, sort of the first in depth ones, um that I just want to read here, and this is from again Cybertext, this is on page one hundred seven of my edition. Um Over the last decade or so, a number of studies have addressed the adventure game as a literary genre, or at least have discussed them from a perspective of literary theory and criticism. The distinction here is important because while the critics apply or suggest literary perspectives, they do not always treat the adventure games as they would a literary work. Even Buckles, in her interesting dissertation devoted to the story game "quote unquote" adventure, seems uninterested in placing her subject text at a specific point in history, and she mentions its creators Crowther and Woods only in footnotes. So,
0: Which what is it? Is false. It that, is false. That, is, that is an inaccurate and incorrect claim, and and the the reason that we're doing this is not like to be like. Uh, the CyberText uh, didn't do the work here. I, that is not the point here. But but the point here is to to say that there is a if Buckles is lost right in the in the bibliography of game studies, or if Buckles is is perhaps not located um, appropriately, how did that happen? And one of those things I think it's undeniable historically is that it, it is being cited in CyberText, which is hugely fundamental here. And then it's being inaccurately portrayed. Yeah. So, uh, like, just to be clear, uh,
1: not only does Buckles place adventure within historical context, not only does she say at multiple points, like, the advent of the computer means we can do this, um, uh, n- not only that, she does talk about Crowther and Woods. She personally corresponds with Woods and quotes his correspondence in the text. Uh, but the note that Arseth uh, gives here uh, is just that she cites them in in her footnotes, and it's just it's not true. It is neither of these claims about what this dissertation is doing are true.
0: Mm-hmm. And she's talking about the the storage of the colossal cave information on a on a actual business-like server in order mm-hmm. to then be referenced, right? For, so from the real cave being referenced, you can also check out Lane Nooney's work, more recent work, obviously, obviously more recent than 1985, but for a more kind of complete version of the story. But, um, there are all kinds of moments here about the emergence of, um, uh, uh of, uh, the text adventure, the specific formulation of adventure, the specific formulation of these things as literature, I think it's undeniable that if, if Buckles is treated as an expert in cybertext, right, as someone that you should go and read, as, as opposed to someone who is not presenting us with useful information, then more people read Buckles. Notice that her
1: it's her interesting dissertation. And in fact, yeah. two pages later, um, I think I mentioned this in our cybertext episode. I think I have memories of reading this on that episode. But two pages later, here's again how Buckles comes up. To date, the most varied, thorough, and valuable contribution to adventure game theory remains Buckles' 1985 dissertation, despite its somewhat long-winded arguments and use of sometimes less-than-rigorous terminology, e.g., quote-unquote, story.
0: There, there's a whole chapter of this dissertation dedicated to, like, what story, and what she call super-story, are. hmm With a bunch of, like, literary theory backing it all up. Mm-hmm. And it's I think what I remember saying in the
1: the R. Seth cybertext episode is that like it is unnecessary the way he editorializes on her argument here uh it's weird, and as you're saying, Cameron, like if you are especially let's say you're a future grad student and you're trying to like get your basis in the field for uh whatever dissertation you're trying to write. You're not going to probably bother to to track down a citation that is presented as like well here's a book that has some good ideas but just has all of these huge flaws, right? Like you should probably still track that down, but especially if you're reading in a hurry, like why why would you track down something that is being presented to you as uh not that useful.
0: Yeah. And, you know, as we say in every episode, the social is defined by its exclusions, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the The bibliographic domain of game studies is defined by the way that we talk about these other texts and the way that we talk about whether something is usefully included or not. And look, this could just be like a difference in style. Like we, the, Arseth does say it's the best thing going so far. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, Shout out to that. And I think I, I think we can't we can't only read the second part of the sentence and ignore the first part of the sentence. I think mm-hmm. that is important. But I, as you're saying, this kind of contextual reading of it, it doesn't sound like this is the kind of thing I need to to go and check out. You know, as opposed to if Arsef uh, had spent three or four pages working through. Well, this is what Buckles says, and this is why I agree with Buckles and don't agree with Buckles. But it's still worth checking out because that's important, right? The the way mm-hmm. that you editorialize in academic work. Um, is is important, and we all do this like this is not I, I by no means want to say that like <laughs> you know all of everyone else in the world is uh, academically free from sin, and cybertext makes this mistake as a book that 's not the case. We literally are always doing this as scholars, right We are making mm-hmm. editorial choices about what we think is valuable and what is not and sometimes we we shortcut things because we have to because of both word counts and producing academic work is really hard it's hard to do um the the research burden on someone to produce uh, uh, you know work is difficult especially now uh when academic workloads are uh, bigger than they ever have been before. Uh, precarity is more and more virulent than it ever has been before, right? Like, I in no way would say that this kind of editorializing has no place because it is a way of, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, sharpening your argument to kind of move us down the path. And that's part of the success, I think, of Cybertext is it is a sharp book mm-hmm. <laughs> that that kind of makes its argument and gets on down the path, right? We talk about mm-hmm. that a lot in the episode. Um, but like that has historic, when when a book becomes a cornerstone of the field that has implications and impacts on one hand, Espen Arseth writes more about buckles than many other game studies books. On the other hand, the way that 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 book writes about buckles is basically to suggest that you shouldn't bother, Mm -hmm. you know, and that CyberText ultimately is coming to replace it. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I think as, as good bibliographic thinkers, right, as good game studies thinkers, we have to hold those two things in tension with one another. Yeah. No,
1: I mean, yep. it's, it's, uh, he, it, he did not drop buckles, right? Uh, yeah. like there are people still talking about her and citing her and here we are today. Uh, chapter two is the chapter of riddles, baby. <laughs> uh, and this is again, right? This is another thing. Well, actually, so technically, um, uh, here, uh, Buckles is pulling from Huizinga which, interestingly, by the way uh, Magic Circle, nowhere nowhere in this book Uh, that that is not a thing that seems relevant to Buckles, it is not something that she picks up, Uh, when she goes to Huizinga, it's for two things, one uh, the idea that the play element is is kind of a fundamental uh, wellspring of like cultural production, thing number one Uh, thing number two uh, one of the sort of earliest forms of literary games or like the not really even forms uh but like a a an early point of cultural development from which both games and literature spring uh is the riddle contest uh sort of the the, the mythological primal idea of, of like the the uh, pre-modern riddle contest uh and you know one of the things she says in the previous chapter that i think is actually kind of relevant here is that Adventure as a a system is basically a huge selection of disconnected puzzles that are loosely pulled together by kind of this fantasy of exploring a cave. Mm -hmm. Um, She, in fact, I think calls adventure like she says, it's, you know, it's it's a bunch of brain teasers, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And so here, uh, going back to Wazinga and kind of like the, you know, ludic agonism that is founded in in the uh, ancient riddle contest... Um Which incidentally also this to speak of things that get pulled forward, this is a huge thing in Nick Monfort's book uh, on interactive fiction, twisty little passages mm-hmm. that that the riddle is somehow uh the the ground zero for what becomes interactive fiction uh because it's all about taking words and then making meanings shift, uh or like obscuring meanings, you know, setting up puzzles with language that can then be solved. So this is where games and literature kind of unite and in for buckles it's where interactive fiction brings them back together because we now once again have uh like linguistic puzzles to be solved. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. I have nothing to add about this chapter.
1: Yeah, I was going to say you, you, if you're if you're a literature person it's um probably it would be interesting to you to jump in and just look at some of this stuff uh because mm-hmm. you know she she makes kind of some uh loose distinctions between like uh i think in your notes cameron you call it a spectrum um because it's mm-hmm. like you know yeah. there there are things that can be uh it's like games as literature versus literature as a game and how do you uh separate one from the other and she looks at certain examples and basically what it comes down to is uh literature it works as a game um when it sets up a puzzle and then kind of provides that solution at the end in the examples she has here, which I think again, uh, for me, the early modernist, very fascinating. She looks to two John Dunn poems, um, specifically Holy Sonnet 14 and the flea. Um, if these are not poems that you're familiar with, uh, I guess go check them out. They're pretty cool. Uh, but the thing that Dunn is kind of famous for and Donne in kind of a, a loose cohort of poets that he's associated with who get called the metaphysical poets later on, uh, like the thing that they do is they write these poems that establish extremely weird metaphors. So, uh, uh, you know, the Holy Sonnet 14, uh, begins batter my heart, three person God. Uh, and the, the entire sort of metaphorical economy, uh, and sort of imagistic economy of that poem is presenting the speaker, you know, slash done as a, uh, hopeful Christian, who is also a city that has been taken over by enemy forces, which is to say, you know, the forces of the world and Satan and so on. And so God, uh, if you are going to save my soul, you need to break down the walls of the city that is me and like, take me back from your enemy. Um, so, uh, this it's, it's really weird and and elaborate, uh, and it's not kind of until the end of the poem that it all sort of like coalesces and you figure out what's going on because the images uh, are inappropriate to each other in some way, right? Or they're, they're, they're uh, in the mm-hmm. sense of like the, the, the metaphor being employed is so kind of uh, against the grain of kind of normal thought that you really have to work to to pull it all back together. Um, and so that's an example of literature as a game, because Dunn's poems end with kind of like his his cute little solution to this big imagistic puzzle that he's laid out for you. Um, and I think, you know, that's kind of and of course, the, the big thing about adventure uh, as kind of the, the distinction here, right? Game as literature is that adventure doesn't necessarily like give you the solution. Like adventure gets to a point where it's like, all right, come up with the solution and we're not going to do anything until you figure it out. Like the game will just stop or like you'll have a whole bunch of like failed commands or what have you.
0: Yeah. If you like what we talked about in the episode on mixed realism and that kind of like game function of literature and literature and, and play, I think it would be really interesting to read this chapter kind of in concert with parts of that book. Mm-hmm. Um, just to get a sense of like, well, I think Buckles is sometimes getting something a little bit more fundamental that's shared there, whereas, uh, uh, mixed realism really kind of gets, it's in the weeds really heavily with some of that stuff. And so I think that if you were like interested in what was going on in the book, mixed realism, and you wanted maybe the, um, I, I don't know, the toolbox version of that, then you can find a lot of that toolbox in this chapter. Mm-hmm next chapter good helpful with each other sorry go
1: ahead so say next chapter adventure first work of a literary mode in its infancy
0: yeah this is the chapter where i was like the first chapter where i kind of stopped nodding my head and i was like uh i don't <laughs> know here buddy um and actually i think that that worked out but this this chapter is really weird because it starts with it basically says it, it does a thing that we love to do in games culture which is to say well games are immature you know mm-hmm. they haven't they haven't aged appropriately yet and once they like a fine wine you know the medium once it ages appropriately then it'll be able to do all the cool stuff that like film does and like you know, I don't know, um, uh, li- you know, literature does, right? Like, just give it time. It's common, right? Mm-hmm. Like, as if the age of a medium, right, just the sheer amount of time it has existed confers some sort of, like, existence. And I have, like, done this before, too, right? Um, I'm kind of on the other end of it, right, where I don't think that's necessarily the case. And in my notes, I'm like, well, I, you know, I immediately, I was like, well, look, the the question here is not the age of a medium. It's like the political economy economy of a medium, right? Mm-hmm. What what money exists in it? What material condition, what material conditions exist around it and within it? And how is it shaped by those forces, right? Mm-hmm. Like ultimately at the end of the day, you know, I've got a big old Marxist feeling about it in that what a medium looks like for mass culture is ultimately the way that that the political economy moves for it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there is the flow of of money and power in the world. Mm-hmm. And so she kind of starts there but actually she backs she kind of backs away from that argument weirdly enough. She says, well, it, ultimately it ends up being the case that she defines maturity of a medium to mean the the way that political economy moves within it, which I don't think is the way that anyone else is talking about this. But mm-hmm. um u- ultimately she says, you know, her nightmare scenario for games is that they become television. Yes which is to say like a, a passive activity that are determined only by their monetizability and their ability to sell you stuff outside of them because mm-hmm. she believes that will rob games of any of their actual useful or interesting qualities. Mm-hmm. I am so sad to report to buckles that that happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um and uh, because ultimately, right? I mean this is it, you know, I'm not saying that happened to all games, but um the age of microtransactions the age of platformization you know what daniel joseph calls uh, battle pass capitalism mm-hmm. right so the idea that that you're supposed to sink time into something in or to extract your own value from it while the game system is extracting lots of value from you by advertising mm-hmm. things or selling microtransactions to you the the era of facebook games and mobile games and they're like constant milking people for money um that that is the television as i televisionization that buckles is so afraid of which is that games just become um a site of pure monetary extraction with a little bit of like novelty to them um which is not to say that you can't enjoy those games i'm i am not like making a moral judgment here Um, because i think that those games are perfectly fine and i play those games as well but if we are looking at if you if you look at the way that tv existed in the 1960s and the economics of tv in the 1960s and you look at the economics of games in the post facebook game era they're very similar it's about Mm -hmm. aggregation it is about um, making sure that there is a strong roi based on the number of uh, you know Um, uh, uh, participants that you have viewers in the case of tv and uh, players in the case of games they they are similarly massified and similarly economized in that way Um, but it takes a weird turn here to uh something you care about i think
1: (laughs) yeah I, i so one of the things that ends up happening is that because of this uh idea of a the maturation of a medium as a thing that kind of happens naturally, right? Just uh, a medium gets invented. And as it kind of continues to exist, uh, people get used to it. They start to recognize the possibilities within it and they start using it for, for this, that, and the other. Uh, This is presented as a thing that has already happened with print. Um, And this is actually, I think it's partly where uh, Buckles is really drawing this argument is I think it used to be very popular in literary studies to talk about uh, print in these terms where the printing press is, is, uh, you know, it it spreads throughout Europe. Um, We get uh, the birth of print culture and sort of a, a newer, wider reading culture and also the vast majority of things being printed are just absolute bizarre trash, uh, or religious, uh, screeds and, and things of that nature. But we get kind of, uh, the first secular, uh, mass market fiction, um, here for buckles. That's the, the prose romances of Amadis of Gaul, which are from the late 14th century. They're kind of, uh, probably an oral tradition that then gets transcribed, uh, written down and becomes part of a, uh, print culture. And then, uh, We have, you know, people, like, writing their own volumes, and and if you don't know what romance is, you know, first of all, think, of course, like, King Arthur, Knights, and so on, um, in the sense of... No, 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 think Fabio. Yeah, think Fabio. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, you have kind of, you know, all of these uh, stock characters, right? Uh, A woman who is trapped, right? A beautiful woman who is trapped, uh, a a sort of venal or corrupt lord, um, a hero who uh is noble and likes to do sacrifice self-sacrifice is always going to do the right thing or like wait hold
0: on are you saying that super mario brothers is a romance
1: oh yeah absolutely i'm surprised uh the dissertation doesn't go there but then again i guess mario brothers wasn't out yet no it was 1984
2: oh oh yeah
1: okay buckles
2: didn't care yeah
1: she didn't care about mario um (laughs) But, yes, no, and this is actually it's it's that's a you know a great sort of like further backing to one of her points, right like one of the reasons Mario works in the way it does is because it's drawing on these like bare bones basic plot archetypes that need very little buy in or are going to present very little friction for uh, the presumed audience, right? Things that you can understand uh, at, in the way that you understand comic strips, right? Like this character walked to this side of the panel or whatever. Now this character I, is them with a frying pan.
0: People are screaming, it's 1995. I'm sorry. I just need, I needed to okay. get that self-correction in there. <laughs> Otherwise <laughs> I would be annihilated. <laughs> oh boy. Um, yeah, 1985.
1: Uh, but anyhow, yes. Uh, so the thing about um, Amadis of Gaul is that uh, these there's no plot to these, right? It's just people having adventures kind of endlessly. Um, you know, like a a something gets resolved and then a new complication is put in place. And then that gets resolved and then a new complication is put in place. And there are more characters who are met and they have more complications. And it just sort of like endlessly sort of spirals out in that way. Um, and so you end up with this huge intricately connected but also kind of cause or like in 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 kind of almost a literal sense they are causally connected because things happen to bring people into certain places and so on and so forth but like at a certain point it's like it it's like anime right or it's like serial television in that that plot arc is just over and we've moved on um and uh this is kind of Presented as a, a lower form of art that then gives rise to, of course, the real form of art, the higher form, which is the novel, uh, specifically uh, uh, um, Cervantes and Don Quixote, which is written as a parody of
0: this type of romance writing. Um. <clears throat> when I was an undergrad, I took a class where we read Don Quixote, mm-hmm. and uh, I would regularly say Don Quixote. Um, And no one, no one ever said anything about that. And in retrospect, it was probably extremely annoying. Uh, But that's still funny to me today. (laughs) It's when I was in high school, we read Macbeth
1: and uh, I was chosen to be to read out Macbeth's lines when we did our live readings of the scenes. And I did them all in an Elmer Fudd voice. (laughs)
0: i also was chosen to do that i was (laughs) not for that uh i took a class on othello one time i think i've talked about this before took a class on othello and i was asked to read um because we did we read it out loud in class before we like began our actual study of it because we were doing a whole semester on it and uh, i was asked to be iago and i did such a poor job of it that i was replaced almost immediately (laughs) <laughs> and not on purpose i wasn't doing a bad job on purpose i just was not good at it <laughs> um but you know the, the uh that's the different paths our lives took i yeah. at that moment swore to hate shakespeare for the rest of my life yeah, and and,
1: and, there there i was basking in the praise of my classmates and the weird forbearance of my teacher um, who just let me do this
0: yeah your teacher didn't worry. they were <laughs> they weren't like michael come on
1: I, I think she had figured out that, like, if she put up any resistance, I would have just, like, escalated. <laughs> I would have been like, no, now it's Elmer Fudd voice 24-7. Speaking of of of, of uh, being a better person, uh, mm-hmm. here's a part of this that reminds me of Homestuck. Uh... Mm-hmm. No, they're actually there the you know preview for the homestuck podcast that is like imminent with us uh, uh mm-hmm. patreon.com slash range touch uh we will start that homestuck podcast when we reach our goal uh and a lot of the information that has come up here uh on on this show game study study buddies will inform the ways that i am trying to unpack uh, uh with with y'all how Homestuck functions as a narrative, uh, and one thing that I think is extremely important for this kind of thing uh, that I pulled out of Buckles here on page eighty one one thing that speaks for the artistic future of interactive fiction is its audience's love of complexity, difficulty, creativity, and what Sherry Turkle has called quote "radical individuality in adventure, this is expressed as a fascination with intricate and complicated puzzles. But there is nothing to hinder this fascination from extending to aesthetic qualities as well. And I would argue uh how Homestuck connects to interactive fiction, at least as Buckles is formulating it here, is that it is explicitly pushing forward the the complexity of, of puzzles in IF into the aesthetic realm, into how characters are written and how they're designed and how they uh, fit into narratives um what the hell does that mean well you'll have to help us make the podcast in order for me to give you the full spiel
0: i uh went into a fugue state there so i wouldn't learn anything good good great i'm back i'm back though
1: uh welcome back uh yeah so (laughs) anyway uh you know the, the basically this argument uh here is you know the the uh the prose romances are sort of long. They they are the adventure, right? In the analogy that Buckles is setting up, adventure is like these prose romances, and it's even even a, a clearer analogy than that, in the sense that people like are making their own versions of adventure. Uh, even even the version of adventure that most people know, it starts with. Um, Crowther, but i think woods comes in and adds a whole bunch of stuff and then uh that version that they send out into the world people make their own kind of customized versions of that uh adding their own puzzles and so on and so forth uh and so she is uh really taking seriously uh the sort of weird types of production that happened around early prose romances and around adventure and she is kind of trying to get us to wonder or to speculate, I think, as to like, well, what does a novel that comes out of this sort of practice look like? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, we can sort of push back on on the novel necessarily evolving out of or progressing from this kind of baser matter. I don't think that that's a, a, a category that I would hold up in terms of how I think about literature. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's it's a good question to ask in terms of what we have this kind of way of producing things now. What are we going to produce?
0: Yeah, and again, you know, just to, to push back on the uh, the claims from cybertext we were talking about earlier, right? This whole chapter is a uh, kind of a paralleling of the development of the novel and then the development of what adventure does, kind of materially. So, mm-hmm. you know, all you know, certainly much more detailed than than um, that book would have you believe. I'm going to kind of blitz through these next two chapters if that's okay. That's fine. Because they're interesting, but interesting in very particular ways. Um, The next chapter uh, is uh, titled Adventurous Relationship to Mystery Literature, which is that? (laughs) (laughs) It's about like, is adventure a mystery? Um, uh, Is it part of the mystery literature category? Because mystery often, mystery novels often have a element of like, you get to participate alongside the the novel in order to figure out what happened. And she's like, or, you know, and to solve the mystery, quote unquote, whether that's Sherlock Holmes or anything else. And she kind of walks through the history of mystery uh, literature and the way that critics within that field and, and authors in that field have kind of thought about the two different sides of it. So like on one side, there are people who are saying that like, there actually should be formal rules four, uh, mysteries in order to make sure that people can quote unquote play along. And then there are people who say that, that is garbage. Why would you do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, they're, they're, you know, experimental and they're literary, they're not puzzles. Um, and, uh, that's really interesting, but ultimately not, uh, I mean, you know, she, she's working through this empirical logic again, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what is to be expected when someone enters into the space and is trying to figure out the content of this world. It's really fascinating, um, but uh, it's kind of its own little bubble here uh, mm-hmm. of an argument.
1: Uh, but also, just to, uh, you know, pull in those connections, mm-hmm. uh, a claim that Arseth picks up again. Um, that mm-hmm. uh, IF and mystery literature uh, are uniquely suited to one another, and that's also a thing that uh, Murray talks about. Uh, that, sort of the whole genre thing also comes up with Murray, too, but she uh, looks to kind of romance and... Um, and mystery literature as as uh, forerunners to the types of stories that she thinks uh, could be written uh, in Hamlet of the Holodeck.
0: hmm The uh the next chapter here um is uh my least favorite chapter by one billion percent. hmm Uh it is because this has been uh, referenced, we haven't really talked about it too much, but the kind of backbone of what Buckles is going for here is figuring out what, you know, as we talked about at the beginning, what is adventure? Like, what is it? And so in order to think about it as this kind of um, programmatic phenomenon, right, with a structure to it, Buckles goes to Vladimir Prop's structural analysis of fairy tales. Mm -hmm. And I could not care less about anything in the world. (laughs) You know, Cameron,
1: I thought you would love Russian formalism
0: oh it's awful to me i, I it's just it's, it's so far away from what i think is interesting about like aesthetic analysis which is like um uh here here are some elements and here's how they get restructured into each other and we're gonna make sure that we figure out like the nine categories and we're gonna fit everything into it like i understand why this is helpful and why this is useful um i understand what how it gives us really big broad work you know i've worked in Uh, Apocalyptic and melancholic and uh, post apocalyptic literature before and and media in a broad sense That's what I wrote my dissertation on I believe in like big buckets You can put things in like I'm not critical of that in any kind of way but the way that that uh, Props work so often gets used and unfortunately the way that's being used here is like Here are the categories, you know, here are the boxes. Does this fit into the box? Okay Doesn't fit in that that box. It fits in this box then Therefore, that's what this thing is, right? Mm-hmm. It's like kind of this math problematization of aesthetic phenomenon that I don't find particularly helpful for myself, although I realize why people find it really helpful and productive about talking about broad trends in, you know, the world. Um, unfortunately, I think that 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 Buckles makes the move that I'm I'm really not interested in, which is treating fairy tales as kind of a and, and these structural categories as kind of an ahistorical phenomenon, like. This is all fairy tales, as opposed to this is fairy tales as they have developed in a very particular kind of historical trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, unfortunately, I mean, I think if if Sith is right about an ahistorical quality to this dissertation, then this is the place where that claim would be correct. I think mm. um, I, I'm really I'm I really am disappointed in this chapter in a broad sense.
1: Yeah, uh, t- to my mind, it almost feels well. Part of it. Part of it happens, at least because uh, Buckles is correct in that walking through a situation in, in adventure can feel like walking through a situation in a folktale. Like you have mm, walked yeah. into the room with the dwarf that is throwing axes at you. What do you do? <laughs> um, uh, but and also, I think, you know, uh, uh, to gesture back toward the fact that it's, what do I use to talk about these things? I, I think that. There is maybe, I I can see why the connection gets made, but I agree with you in that I don't think it's the most helpful uh, mode of analysis for what's happening in Adventure. Um,
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you're right. Like, um, she is scrounging for tools to apply to this thing to make it legible to her literary studies department. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is a heuristic and a tool that allows you to do that. It allows you to make comparative claims with the rest of literature and i think that's kind of what's going on in the um you know the comparative to Amadis of gaul and all that stuff too Mm -hmm. right it's this fits within what you are familiar with, literary studies people, I promise. Let me do this work. So, like, I have an infinite amount of empathy, and I understand exactly why this happens. I just don't think the analysis produces much for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, yeah, you're 100% right. That, like, this is here for a reason, and it is a reason that has to do with the structure of academia as much as it has to do with, like, this actually being helpful for her.
1: Oh, uh, one other thing here, actually, that ties into her larger argument as well because folk tales and fairy tales tend to be very moralistic. uh, This is a way in which games to touch again on on an earlier thing that you mentioned, the ways that uh, adventure specifically uh, just like untethers itself from a moral universe. uh, Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when you listen to a folk tale um, or a fairy tale, there's usually some implicit moral, some sometimes explicit, but usually some sort of implicit moral at the end, right? About don't go
0: into the woods.
1: Right. Exactly. That sort of thing. Um, whereas, uh, here in, and this also touches on something that you mentioned earlier, because this is the point where she mentions, uh, the woman who wanted to cage the dwarf and then got into like this like long philosophical discussion with uh, the person who might be a uh, who is referred to as her play partner so play um, partner okay yeah I don't know we don't know who that is this is the other interesting thing that I would be fascinated to learn more about is that Buckles seems to have been like uh, and this is also in that interview on Internet Archive like watching people she just sat and watched people play this game and not just adults but like children right she was like sitting and watching people and taking notes it seems like uh, and uh that's some of the most fascinating stuff in this dissertation to me is when she gets into like the distinct play experiences and how those things, uh, uh, can be different. Uh, but I
0: think, Oh, I think just about that. I think that we've gotten past it. I didn't make a note about it, but at one point she talks about the difference in play experience because she says that you, you know, you can get from point A to point, you know, Z wherever she's talking about in nine moves in the game. But she says, You know, I sat and watched someone do it and it took him 36 moves to get there, you know, and and she's using that to think about this kind of trial and error empirical process thing going on. But, like, she was writing down how many moves it took for people to get from point A to point, you know, Z Mm -hmm. or whatever in the thing. Like, that's such a specific kind of, like, participant observation thing. And it sounds like she's not giving anyone any hints in that way, too. So. Mm Uh yeah, there's some IRB questions I think about this. <laughs> I think about this dissertation D- that did not matter maybe as much in 1985, but yeah, there's a fascinating kind of like social science element to this that um really backs up a lot of the argument. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, so uh, th- that's, you
1: know, one of the reasons why I think because uh, props analysis of folk tales is also very much like these are about teaching like peasant children not to go into the woods. Uh, hmm. but what is adventure teaching you? Uh, and in what she finds is that people kind of import their own moral frameworks into the game. And so that's why we get this woman who thinks she basically wants, she does not want to hurt things that she finds in the cave. And so she's trying to cage the dwarf.
0: Mm-hmm. And she says, I think, is this the chapter where she says, cause she talks about, uh, watching these people play a few different times. I, I didn't write a note down, but I think this is the chapter where she says that only one of the people that she watched approached it just purely as a game. Yes. You would approach Sudoku or whatever. And so, uh, you know, would try every option agnostic of morals because he had no moral framework that he was applying to the game. You know, it's just pure experimental space.
1: Yes, uh, so yeah, this is on page uh, one twenty six where she talks about, uh yeah, all, only one player came in and approached it as just like a game or a puzzle to be solved. All other players assumed that the game had some sort of moral logic to them and uh or had some sort of moral logic to it, and that there would be consequences for you know, example, like taking something that was obviously not yours or killing a dwarf or whatever um, but she said, and this is also interesting, uh she said notably all of them as they played uh became less morally freighted and more uh sort of ludic and game like in their interactions after it like everyone eventually figured out oh the game is not judging me morally and i can do whatever i want
0: mhm there's a whenever this comes up i always think about this conversation i had with um uh a, a friend of mine who plays games uh is a uh developer uh a, a web developer, I guess, in the, in a broad sense. And uh we were having a conversation about Hugo's House of Horrors, favorite favorite game of mine from way back an, an adventure game. And in that game there's a puzzle that you can solve uh, or that you have to solve in order to get through the game where there's a dog and if you go onto the screen, uh, the dog will just come and attack you. Mm-hmm. And you're you're a little Hugo and you don't want to get attacked by a dog. So you have to go get some meat from the kitchen. You have to throw it in the backyard. You know, and then the dog runs and gets the meat, and you can go through the screen. Um, but the dog can eat the meat, and you cannot make it through the screen. So they, the the developer had to make it uh, uh, re- repeatable, so mm-hmm. you can always go to the 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 room, get the meat, throw it in there, dog eats it, and you can try it again and again, and you get points. This is a you know from the era where all games had scores for some reason. <laughs> uh, you know, very very early Sierra style in that way, and so uh, my my friend. Uh, told me the story about like as a kid being so excited about this because you could just rack up the points forever <laughs> and so <laughs> would just go would spend all of the play session just going and getting meat and throwing it in the backyard racking up those sweet sweet points <laughs> <laughs> and, and that to me I always go to that for like the, the logic of games right like the things that games do to our thought processes mm-hmm. right that, that's totally unhinged from any narrative or like logical thing that one would do but it's like touching a, a gamey point you know in the logic of the game where it's like yeah there's no moral universe here there's no like even narrative universe it's just about making those sweet points go up Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, I don't know I think about that all the time um but but that's of the kind of thing like no one was playing the game uh in that way at this time right they were all coming in assuming that there was a narrative and uh kind of morally coherent reason to interact with the game in some kind of way other than as just a game Mm -hmm. um and i think we've gotten away from that right i mean i think most people who play games recognize their kind of gamey nature Mm -hmm. um i mean that's the whole like you know, Mortal Kombat and Grand Theft Auto will not morally harm us argument. Right. Right. Because like the, the, the mass argument about games is that, well, uh, we know they're fake and they're just games. Mm-hmm. so We can do what we want. We're, you know. Um, so uh, yeah, I think, think things have flipped here. Next chapter is called point of view in adventure, uh, which is pretty interesting. And, uh, uh, uh something that's worth digging into. If you care about things like in a video game, what is a narrator? Uh, because, that, I mean, especially mm-hmm. in adventure, it's a pretty big question, right? It's like, is the narrator, uh, is it like this operator entity? Is mm-hmm. it uh, omniscient? Sometimes it's omniscient when it gives you information. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's limited. Sometimes it knows, for example, uh, Buckles uses the example of um, it will tell you there's a pit and if you go to the pit, you're going to fall down it. Well, Mm -hmm. how does the narrator know that if it's not omniscient? Right. So the narrator has like all these weird different functions that, that buckles kind of works through by close reading adventure here. Mm -hmm. And, and I will say this is like exact kind of like, um, in my best moments as a game, uh, like academic and a game critic, I think this is what I, uh, am trying to get at, which is, Games ask us to do some extremely weird stuff, to accept some really weird stuff. And if you pause to think about it for a moment, it's often really, really weird. Like the things that we're we're asked to accept just as part of it. But games function in such a way that we're really often like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Let's just do that. And I don't mean just like quest stuff. I mean, um, for example, and this is a question that just annihilates me, what is a video game camera? Mm -hmm. Like, what does it do? How does Mm -hmm. it work? How are we like entrained into believing that it does certain things and can move around in ways that like the human eye and even the filmic camera would never do, right? But we we think that's perfectly normal. We have no questioning of it. Like these are things that, or like what is time in a game? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, uh, you know, what what is empiricism in a game? You know, again, that's what my book is all about. Um, and so I am consumed by these questions also. And Buckles, I think, does a really good job of saying like, what is happening when the narrator is telling us stuff and what are we bringing with us? Uh, Ends up talking about Eliza in a really interesting way, the the chatbot Eliza, um, and ultimately ends up saying that the narrator is kind of this uh, inhuman perceptive apparatus that is communicating detail to us uh, that is kind of partial. It's partial information that it thinks we need to know. Right. So it's like, never fully the situation but it's enough of the situation for us to be able to do like empirical thinking about it Mm -hmm. and uh you know that's not i don't think that's necessarily by design in the sense that like no one set out to say this is how adventure is going to talk to the player because it's such a varied form it's this big kind of melange or like collapse of stuff that ultimately ends up working um and anyone who's ever done you know if you teach games in any kind of capacity Um, I would suggest this exercise, which I've done a bunch of different times and it always works. Pull up adventure, of which there are many different playable types online, but they're all basically the same code base. Pull up adventure and have your class play it as a group, meaning that like put it on a projector, sit there and say, all right, what should I do now? And have people shout out suggestions for how to do it and do this for 30 minutes. And you will quickly find out that what each individual person how they interpret the narrator in this game and what the narration is intending to tell them is radically different Mm -hmm. um and yet as you were saying earlier michael the game entrains you into its own kind of logic in such a way right you learn its language in such a way that eventually everyone kind of picks it up and gets a handle on it Mm -hmm. or at least in the group you know the group lot you know logic mechanism can do that um and so she's trying to figure out here through the narration mechanic or the narration kind of concept here how does that happen? So it's really fascinating to me uh, if you're into that kind of thing of how does a game communicate to the player? This is a really great place to go for that.
1: Yeah, and uh, my sort of half of this would be that she historically situates this uh, within the history of the novel. And she begins by talking about uh, 19th century fiction narrators in particular. Her, her example here is uh, Charles Dickens, mm-hmm. uh, who sort of famously has a uh, kind of cartoonish, non-naturalistic dialogue that she focuses on a lot, uh, where it is like you, you can read a Dickens novel and you can get a pretty good sense for like when a character a certain character is speaking and like he is telling you Charles Dickens's opinions on things, right? Mm-hmm. Or alternatively, a, a character is speaking and you get a pretty strong sense that like Charles Dickens does not want you to like Charles Dickens thinks this sort of person is an idiot. Um there there's like a, a clear kind of author presence in Dickens's work. Uh and of course, uh the, the, the supreme example of this for me is always Bleak House, which has two narrators, uh and it's really fascinating because one of them is a young woman and she's a first person narrator, and her chapters alternate with a third person narrator who is omniscient, and the two narrators know each other and refer to each other in their respective chapters, even though the omniscient narrator is never a specific character but like the first person narrator will mention like having uh talked with like the other person it's it's like fascinating and bizarre uh but then uh she kind of traces this history up through kind of the development of the of the modernist novel uh and particularly through Henry James who has very different ideas uh on how narrative should work in a novel and how narrators as a function of fiction should work uh in particular like the, the thing that James is big about is like the narrator as a person should not be like you should not be reading it and be like oh that's some classic charles dickens uh mm-hmm. like the narrator as a personality needs to disappear so that they are kind of almost a transparent screen between the reader and uh like the the inner monologue of the characters or what have you and of course this is you know James kind of at the at the beginning of uh you know pioneering stream of consciousness techniques and things like that uh but she takes this entire history and then she's like and now we have adventure which uh just like torpedoes whatever progression James was trying to work on the function of the narrator uh, because there's no way to deny that the narrator of Adventure is in some way a, a sort of like pseudo character that you have to learn to interact with
0: yeah so the uh <laughs> yeah, I I I didn't really know any of this about like Henry James's like philosophy of narration. Mm-hmm. Uh and so I thought it was really funny, like to put the two things I know about Henry James in my head, which is now this and then ghost stories. Mm-hmm. I love the idea that Henry James is like, okay, we gotta get rid of the narrator as like this other thing. It's only gotta be character perspective. Mm-hmm. Great. What's difficult for people to get a handle on? Ghosts. Okay, good. Here we go. <laughs> Well, and that's, see,
1: that's the Jamesian ghost story is because he works so hard to, like, uh, eliminate the distance between what the reader is reading and sort of, like, the actual, like, psychology of the character Uh, is that you never know when a a ghost shows up in a Jamesian ghost story. It's never clear if it's, like, psychological projection or if they've actually seen a ghost. Like, you can't make a call on it. It's, uh, I don't know. But that's a different podcast, I guess. (laughs)
0: Well, uh, that kind of shows up in our "Just King Things" episode on The Shining. Mm-hmm. So, if you want to go check that out, you can go to Just King Things. Just Google it, I guess. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't make a short URL. By the way, the short URL for uh, for this show, if you're curious curious about it, is PureIdeology.biz. Yeah, PureIdeology.biz. So, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, me too. I forgot about it till the other day, and I thought I'm paying for this. We need to talk about it more. <laughs> um uh yeah so the last chapter you know and this this is a pretty i think typical dissertation mode like we get a last chapter and that's it mm-hmm. things over um following my dictum that no book should have a conclusion <laughs> <laughs> no no reason for it get these things out of here no conclusions um but uh yeah chapter seven is on reader response and i uh, unfortunately i'm gonna make you talk about this michael reader response being a huge thing in the 1980s and i guess it's uh an important kind of part of the the bones and the structure of literary analysis still, mm-hmm. but uh, it, was the, it was the hot new thing in the the 80s.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, so, you know, reader response theory and reader response criticism uh, is a, as you said, a, a kind of mode of literary scholarship and analysis that comes around in, in the 70s and 80s, uh, kind of simultaneous with the rise of uh, post-structuralism and Derrida and all this, uh and in some ways uh and this is like not something that i can point to in a book uh where other people have made this claim but to me it it has always seemed like uh what happens when new criticism meets theory uh because new criticism is this older mode where it's like oh you should just you know look at the text on the page and read it closely and ignore all of the things that maybe the author said that the poem was about or all of the political things the author might have done the political positions they might have had uh their opinions on maybe i don't know segregation in the south uh just don't don't bother looking at those and using those to interpret what is going on in in a poem um which is to say uh, I do think close reading is very helpful, but also like New Criticism as as kind of this uh, metastasization of close reading comes about under very particular political circumstances.
0: Yeah, read the it's called the what the making of Faulkner's reputation. Yeah, I think about, something like it's that. It's about the the formation of New Criticism in the in the American Academy, which is actually quite different than how it formed in Europe, mm-hmm. um, and it's a kind of they formed at the same time in different contexts but the the US version of it is very much tied up in uh, kind of questions of race and uh, how much political weight we have to give to the words of an author mm-hmm. um, so yeah I think it's called the making of Faulkner's reputation it's a I had to read it in undergrad it's a fascinating book that's yeah. um, about like why did why did it appear why did new criticism appear mm-hmm. but anyway sorry uh,
1: so uh, to you know, trace the genealogy a little bit further, uh, reader response re- criticism uh, to me has always seemed like what happens to new criticism, which tends to treat uh, the, the poetic or aesthetic object as like hermetically sealed or kind of wholly self-contained. Uh, what happens when you crack that open just a little bit? Because what reader response criticism uh, is sort of fascinated by is the fact that two people can read the same poem and have two entirely different interpretations of it. Uh, Like fundamentally, that's just, you know, where we can start Uh, and reader response uh, theory is kind of like, okay, so how do we conceive of the reader's place in the meaning making process? So we're going to look at the words on the page and kind of how they're put together and how the way that a text is written uh, is texts are put together in such a way to prompt certain responses And sometimes this works and sometimes it doesn't. And what are kind of the limits on that? uh, uh, What sort of is going on? And so someone like Stanley Fish, who's a big reader response critic, um, uh, puts out, uh, uh, I think it's called Surprised by Sin, uh, which is his book on Paradise Lost. And of course, like the problem in Paradise Lost, Milton's poem, is that it's supposed to be this uh, grand epic poem justifying the ways of God to man, right? Do you think it's bad that God, like, uh, kicked Adam and Eve out of Eden and now we're all, you know, cursed with original sin? Well, this poem is going to help you understand why that happened. Except, it turns out, kind of, one of the, the, the sort of first and, in, in, for many people, main protagonist of that poem is Satan himself, and he spends the entire poem talking about how all of this stuff is totally unjustified. Um, And so Stanley Fish's response to uh, this kind of problem through reader response theory is that how you are supposed to the sort of like the way that uh, uh, you were supposed to read Paradise Lost is to be um, surprised by how much you agree with Satan and to allow that surprise to kind of bring you to read uh, more and more sympathetically Satan's side of things until the point in the poem where God gets reasserted. Right, that there's a kind of, there's supposed to be almost a a sort of, like, religious effect you're supposed to have uh, as a reader. Um, Or a religious experience, or a kind of theological kind of experience, uh, aesthetic theological experience. Um, In another mode, uh, we have people like Umberto Eco, who uh, uh, talks about, like, the open work, which is that, you know, the work of... uh, Everything can be constantly reinterpreted always, right? The work does not close, you can never finalize interpretation, there is always kind of more reading to be done. Uh, And he also talks about, you know, texts as lazy machines. Uh, So this is part of reader response where um, there are things in a book that you're just never going to hear about or there are, th- there are things that are going to be referenced that you're never going to see on the page. And uh, basically all texts are made up of uh, huge blank spots that we just kind of cognitively paper over as a matter of moving through a narrative. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is what reader response theory-, theory is interested in, is how do texts work on readers? How do they solicit kind of reader input in ways that you know pr- prior to computers... Um you know how do how do they solicit kind of your belief in your input and and uh how does that factor into the larger uh formation of what fish would call an interpretive community right? a group of people who all kind of look at a text or a series of texts and basically
0: agree on how to read them and why. Have you ever done the uh like the Stanley fish like partial poem experiment?
1: I have not, but actually I should probably do that uh in the fall. that would be interesting. I don't...
0: Yeah, I don't know. So if if, if you're not familiar with it, uh, Stanley Fish uses this anecdote a few different times, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of credited as being one of the things that spurs him, or at least the way he tells the story, you know, partially spurs him to think through questions of reader response, which is that you come into a classroom and I think this actually happens to him, right? Um, historically, at some point, probably in the 60s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, come, you come in and there's a chalkboard. Okay, so that dates when this happens. And someone in the previous class has like written a poem you know some lines of a poem up on the chalkboard and like part of it's been erased right um and then like fish sits with his classroom and they try to figure out what the hell is going on Mm -hmm. like interpret the poem Mm -hmm. and maybe even the full poem is there i don't remember i've I've been told this story a few different ways um and so by by doing that it kind of reveals that exactly like you're saying his his big one of his big key terms is uh, interpretive communities right Um, By looking at this fragment completely removed from any kind of context and then interpreting it, you end up getting, um, you know, the kind of vibe from the community uh, about what they think this thing means. And you're able to kind of piece together what uh, the community uh, believes about X, Y, Z. You know, you, you get this kind of. Uh, consensus reading or you can get to a consensus reading of something that is so wholly divorced from whatever its original context is Mm -hmm. um i've i in in undergrad i was in like multiple classes where this happened and sometimes it totally works and like you get an interpretive community and sometimes, uh, it is such a dud that it goes nowhere <laughs> <laughs> and that like, there's not enough like playfulness quite literally within the community in order to take that seriously. Mm-hmm. And now you end up with a, with uh this even weirder thing where like someone can just Google it immediately. Right. <laughs> and figure out where that comes from or like what the context is. And so it's a little bit more complicated now, but Um, you know, that I, if people aren't familiar with it, that's kind of a a good key example there. And, uh, if you had run it before, I've never tried it myself, but Mm -hmm. I've been, uh, experimenting on with it. And it's really interesting that it's almost wholly binary. People are either willing to play ball or they're like, yeah, it's part of a poem. And we just don't know the rest of the poem. What do you want from me? (laughs) (laughs) Like, like that's the other response this very pragmatic kind of response to Mm -hmm. it. Uh, that I that I at the time found fascinating, and even more now, you know, having taught a lot of classes and a lot of students, I find that even more fascinating. That sometimes people don't want to play the ball, you know, don't want to play ball with interpretation. Period. They just want to like figure out what the thing means and get on with their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they want the rules. Uh, they want the rules for the mystery in some ways.
1: I, I'm gonna I'll, I'm gonna make a note to myself to try it in the fall in class, and I'll I'll maybe report back here if I remember to.
0: Yeah, bring bring, yeah. A, yeah, bring a report. I'll ask you. I'll yeah. ask you a year from now. I'll put it in my calendar. <laughs>
1: okay, so hopefully I remember what happened this fall a year from now. Uh,
0: okay, I'll ask you six months. <laughs> I'll meet you in the middle.
1: Uh, uh, but to, to sort of like, yeah, so this is reader response theory. And um, the thing that you were just referencing, Cameron, uh, for people who want to track it down is an essay that is called, and I think is also the title of the book in which that essay appears. It's called, Is There a Text in This Class? And that's by yeah, Stanley yeah, Fish. Yeah yep um uh. so so reader response theory uh clearly right it is it is a literary uh sort of school of literary theory that is deeply interested in the place of the reader in regards to the text the way that readers make meaning and this should you know clearly uh have some sort of like abutment at least with uh, what buckles is talking about and what interactive fiction is and for buckles the the key term is um something that she draws from uh wolfgang Iser who is a a German, uh, I don't know if he's technically reader response or if he precedes them, but he's at least very foundational for them if he's not an an outright like reader response person. Uh, Easter talks about uh, in his kind of narratology theory of the novel work, um, the idea of the gap, uh, which is those details that are never finalized within a story. Um, the places where interpretation does come into play either sort of intentionally because the author has been vague on this point so they like because they want people to kind of speculate and imagine and think or alternatively um those gaps that exist because authors don't really care and i don't mean that in sort of a, a a callous way but in like a a way in which, you know, sometimes you're writing and certain details just don't get finalized in in a way that is clear to the reader and because it, it all you need is one reader to kind of like hit a detail that is ambiguous in some way and they can spin out an entirely new interpretation of the story that is happening. Um mm-hmm. so uh the the gaps then are really the key for buckles because for her interactive fiction and at the very least you know adventure as a form of it literalizes this by putting those gaps at the end of every move the gap is a real thing that the reader has to like type something in to fill to make the game move forward whereas uh in in sort of more traditional literary literary theory it's a a sort of an abs- a kind of cognitive or an imaginary absence that the reader fills in. Um, the other way to think about this is like, uh, if you're from comic studies, uh, the, the gutters between panels, right? What happens in the gutters between panels? Your imagination fills in that work. Uh, so this all then comes into, uh, an idea of the, the open loop of readership that she, from the uh, another kind of structuralist, post-structuralist reader response person, uh, Zvetan Todorov, who also wrote on uh, The Fantastic. Um, and he has his loop of reading is that, you know, basically his argument uh, for this loop is that reading has distinct stages and they go like this. Uh, one is that the author has an account of something that they have written. That account uh gives rise to a kind of imaginary universe that the author is imagining uh that they have in their head uh this oh these two things together right these two steps uh sort of allow the reader to come in and use the author's account to generate their own imaginary version of that universe uh their own kind of like internal uh tracking of what is happening in a narrative what is happening in a story and then that can give rise to what uh, Todorov calls the reader's account which is to say uh, you know the author will tell you what happens in the story is one thing the reader will tell you something else and so uh how do you get to these two dis- distinctions it's because of that open loop of uh you know these four steps uh for Buckles uh i f s big kind of uh innovation here is that it closes the loop, so the author has kind of their account, their writing, and kind of their imaginary universe, and then uh that links up with the reader's imaginary universe, which is also called for Buckle's the supra Story, which is like one of the most fascinating things in in this uh dissertation uh that supra story gives rise to the reader's account which is to say so the reader has their imaginary version of what's going on in the world their kind of picture of the world of this fiction uh then their account which is to say their own kind of rational catalog of how this world works and like what they can do in it and what they're getting ready to do and uh the next step then is that the reader provides text or input uh back into the author's imaginary universe back into the author's account, and uh the cycle perpetuates itself in that way. does that seem accurate Cameron?
0: yeah, um I, you know, and for people who are kind of like in the game's world what what is really interesting to me about this like kind of super story um distinction here is that you know the privileging the super story is the is what happened when new games journalism appeared right mm-hmm. and it like thinking through the actual realities of the Supra story um, is uh, like the big innovation I would say in like games essays and games writing broadly in the world, which is that the experience of the moment by moment, um, the kind of uh, uh, existential quality of doing, of going through the same story that everyone else is going through, but having your own kind of phenomenological or experiential form to that 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 constitutes like its own thing in the world. And then communicating to that to other people actually has value. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I think super story is really helpful there. Um, Heuristically, and it gets at something different than uh, say like, plot narrative story distinctions and literary studies i think that i think super story i don't know if it's like the most uh, uh you know beautiful term i've ever seen you know i don't look at it and go ha ha mm-hmm. oh my gosh yeah <laughs> but uh i do think like the definition of it and what it is is, is pretty helpful I'm, i mean I'm, I'm definitely going to engage with this especially because it's kind of like a lower level theory idea mm-hmm. by which i mean that like the 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 narrative as experienced by a human being is obviously like something that everyone is talking about all the time and writing about games but having a keyword for it is really helpful i think so super story is where it's at
1: yeah and just to give you to maybe make this a little more clear if, if uh you wanted that uh listener uh the thing where like the the player did not want to harm things in the cave and so she wanted to put the dwarf in a bird cage that is an example of the super story. Right. The, the, the imaginary or phenomenological way that that player interacted with adventure was, oh, this game, like, I don't want, I think this game might judge me for being a bad person, and I don't want to be a bad person. And so uh, the super story, one of the terms that I used in my notes, actually, because of, well, of course I did, right, uh, psychoanalysis, but it's like an explanatory fantasy for uh, the ways that yeah. things are happening. <laughs> so another example um, she, this is another player we haven't talked about, but Buckles mentions them. Uh, they are actually they were actually a spelunker or had at least you know cave exploration experience, and this meant that they would play the game according to the rules of spelunking. Uh, uh, so things like they did not leave trash, they did not drop things. If they dropped thing or like they would pick things up and take them back like up above the surface and drop the trash above ground because when you're spelunking you don't litter in the cave.
0: Oh, there's a real psychoanalytic moment that somewhere in here, I didn't write a note about it, where she's talking about the person who had childhood fantasies of stealing things. Yes, and who would, like, (laughs) steal,
1: like, would pick up everything that was, like, interactable.
0: Yes, and would go secret it back in the uh in the building mm-hmm. of the game, and then like go back down and like retrace her steps constantly, so she wouldn't get caught stealing. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's some real stuff going on here. Yeah, the interesting thing about super story as a, as a term here, as a concept, is that it's unclear. It's it's fairly open as a term, so it's unclear if it is only like kind of the structuring fantasy, you know of of whatever your way of engaging with the world is or if it can be intentional you know so i'm thinking about like challenge runs or things like that or you know playing skyrim as a as a pacifist right Mm -hmm. and imagining this whole world is like a place that one could enter in or interact with pacifistically you know uh, super story uh, buckles doesn't make a lot of clarity there because it doesn't seem like anyone is playing adventure with purposeful challenge runs in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, although I do really love the other explanation of the birdcage player that if the birdcage, because there, apparently there are passages you can try to go through, but if the birdcage is in your inventory, the game is like, you can't go there, Birdcage too big, what are you doing? And the birdcage player would just say, yeah, I'm not going down there. Yeah. I'm going to go another way. <laughs> I need this birdcage. It's critical to the <laughs> way I'm playing the game. <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, and so, I mean, that's that's that, and then kind of the the chapter ends uh, with a resumption of the scientific method argument.
0: And it's never really left the thing. I mean, every time the science, scientific method could show up, but basically she's saying that um, once people have a kind of rule set that they're interacting with the world with, they're going to keep trying to experiment with it and make sure that it produces some sort of results that allow them to keep pushing onward. And they keep, they keep revising that in their head, their kind of mental map of, the interactive space of the game Mm -hmm. and so we can
1: ends yeah we conclude with the recent works of interactive fiction make use of the puzzle solving aspect inherent in the medium by imitating popular forms of literature that are also puzzle and rule based especially science fiction and mystery literature there is no reason why the interactive fiction medium should not produce works of high artistic value I believe this will be achieved when authors learn to use its feedback mechanism for the subtle control of readers thought processes. And especially when the contemplative reflective qualities inherent in the medium are artistically exploited as the central literary
0: experience. And this is, you know, kind of the core claim of Hamlet on the holodeck, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, making a similar kind of called shot here, right. Of, um, uh, you know, games will co- interactive media broadly will come into its own when programmatically the cyberbard can like do its thing, right? Right. You know, that's that's kind of it, and that will allow for, uh, you know, customization and a truly important and deep literary experiences. Although I don't know if Murray is using the word literary, but deeply mediated and interesting artistic works because of the complexity of response and uh, augmentation mm-hmm. on the part of the cyberbard um same with like uh insulin too insulin in reading interactive fiction kind of makes the same mm. same um claim here that like it's about depth of possible response if i I mean it was like two three years ago when we read that book so it's been been a while but i seem to remember that showing up uh i don't know called shot we often evaluate our called shots michael has has this called shot come to bear uh um. Sort of. Are you being manipulated? Yeah. Are you, are you, uh, is, is the, the feedback mechanism subtly controlling your thought processes?
1: Well, I mean, I'm going to say as someone who is, one, uh, I don't write interactive fiction, uh, by the definition that Buckles, uh, uses because I haven't, uh, I haven't released, I guess, anything that would use a parser. Um, but this idea of like the subtle, like you know, subtle manipulation of the reader's thought processes, like that's one hundred percent how I think—not just as someone who writes interactive fiction, but as a writer. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I think it, it sounds very, uh, uh, you know, ominous. But it is kind of like put, for me, putting together certain sentences or how he, trying to figure out how things are going to fork and twine is a thousand percent me being like, okay, what do I want the Player to think is happening versus what I am actually doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so there is that. Uh, but what I think is kind of interesting is, yeah, you know, listener, you may may be wondering about this ending bit about if being contemplative and reflective. Uh, this is part of that scientific method argument where uh, when you get into a spot in adventure when you're where you're stuck and you can't move things forward, all you have to do is reflect. Like, that is the only option available to you, is to sort of, like, think about what do I think about this world, this room, this puzzle? What are the assumptions that I'm making? Uh, and how do I, like, find my way through by, uh, you know, changing some assumption that I've made? Like, what is what is the thing that I have assumed to be true that is not true that will let me break through this puzzle? Or what have you. Um, I think that that is interesting because the contemplative reflective qualities of, I don't know, IF or video games are things that I, they have pushed forward, uh, but mostly in sort of indie games, independent spaces, uh, where you can kind of take more artistic gambles, uh, because the thing to to touch on your earlier point about, um, buckles and sort of the nightmare of video games becoming television, uh, mainstream games like big budgeted studio games are all about like swerving away from anything that might make you contemplative it's supposed to be about sort of like consistent buy-in consistent action uh i think there's a point where she's uh, you know uh it says that uh, she says on page 185 um it is not possible to solve all the problems in adventure in, in one particular way or whatever, because so many of them are symbolic or emotional in nature, not intellectual. To solve such problems, readers must look inward and observe their own interpretive assumptions, review the evidence, then ask themselves why they think the way they do. And my immediate thought was that, like, if you were doing this in, like, a big game space today, you would just get accused of bad design. Like if I have to think too hard about what I'm supposed to be doing in the game, you've done something wrong as a designer.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, that is the 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 mantra of quote unquote good game design, right? Is that it teaches itself and that um the the, the loop, right? The thirty second loop. I mean, you know, that's the I think the the famous one comes from um uh from, from, I think, a Halo developer, right? You know, five seconds to five minutes to mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. 30 minutes to an hour, right? Like, these things build out from one another, kind of, the, the core loop expands, and as it gets put into novel situations, ultimately ends up producing, like, you know, scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but that 30 seconds has got to be good, right? Or that five seconds has to be really good. And so, and, and yeah, so, like, transparency, you know, uh, an absolute transparent relationship between player and world where they understand everything that's happening is highly privileged. Um, And that makes sense. I mean, uh, games exist as commercial objects, you know, uh, certainly these big budget games that we're talking about, they're commercial objects. If you bounce off one, if you find one really frictional for 30 minutes, there are 15 other ones that have no feeling like that for you. Mm -hmm. And they're designed to have no kind of feeling for that. So um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, i guess the the flip side here right is i think you're right that that the independent spaces are obviously the places where we see the most experimentation with that but you know to go back to the buckles right what what you read i believe this will be achieved when authors learn to use its feedback mechanism for the subtle control of reader's thought processes and especially when the contemplative reflective qualities inherent in the medium are artistically exploited as the central literary experience i think that's true that they probably are um that 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 the central literary experience is being exploited in the games that care about that. For the most part, games do not care about being literary objects, Mm -hmm. right. Of like contemplation and and reflection or anything like that. They care about being commercial objects that uh, encourage you to spend time and money within them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that that's the move to games as a service, for example. Um, And I don't think I'm, I'm not saying that to like morally condemn those things. I play all those games and I think that's perfectly fine. But uh, I think you're right that that for the most part, you know, if the called shot is that will games become more like literary modernism or will games become more like television? They became more like television. Yeah. In every possible way. Um, And uh, I don't think it's any surprise that like The Last of Us is getting a a TV show and Mm -hmm. Uncharted is getting a movie. Right. Mm -hmm. Like these things, they want you to. Think of them uh, in relationship to these other stuff. Westworld is a TV show that's about a game. right? Right. It only works because it has this kind of game-like mystery quality to it, quite literally in the mystery way that she's talking about in this dissertation. So the gamification, although in a different way, the gamification of television and the televisionification of games is something that definitely occurred um, and is continuing to happen. Uh, do you like having read this thing, Michael? Was this worth your time?
1: I think it was extremely worth my time. There's a bunch of stuff in here that I'm going to be citing moving forward.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, definitely worth your, and it won't take you very long. This is, it's like 200 pages, but it's 200 pages of double-spaced big font. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, I, I read it over, like, very leisurely over a couple of days, and, and that felt appropriate. I didn't feel like I was rushing through it at all.
1: Somehow this is just um, as long as any of our other episodes, but, uh... It was a pretty brisk read. I read it mostly on a commute.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know what our next book is, I don't think, right? I don't think so, no. Well, stay tuned to twitter.com slash range touch to find that out. We'll, probably, we'll announce it at some point soon. I, we we made a big list at the beginning of the summer of what we were going to do for the summer, and I think we've done them all, so yeah. <laughs> we need to figure that out. I've got a couple things that I've gotten in the mail and a couple things people have... Uh, suggested to me that that are on um, my long list but uh, we uh, you know we'll let people know we'll let people know what the next three or four books are soon if you want to go over to the discord uh, it's a link to it is down in the description to join the discord you can do that too and then uh, you'll be able to uh, figure out what we're up to. We have a great community over there that talks about game studies and all kinds of other stuff pretty regularly. If you have any questions or anything like that, you want to come and, and uh, ask us, you can do that. You can also submit questions. Um, maybe we'll look at some of those in the next episode. Michael, what's the the thing for that?
1: It is gssbemails at gmail.com.
0: There you go. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll be back in a month with another episode. Michael, am I forgetting anything? Uh, I wanted to plug something actually really quick. Oh, please do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: So if you're listening to this, and especially if you're listening to this episode and you are interested in hearing more uh, of me for some reason, talking about intersections of games and literature, very recently I was a guest uh, on uh, James Howell's Delta Head podcast. Uh, You can find that on Twitter at uh, Delta Head Media um and that is a podcast where uh, james and a in a, a guest discuss how poems interact with games really is 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 just the basic conceit it's very cool and i came on to talk about uh uh the poem the listeners by walter de la mare and amelia lanyer's uh country house poem a description of cookham uh in relation to the game gone home thinking about the ways that uh games and poems both use space to inscribe and describe uh narrative and intimacy
0: interesting
2: mm-hmm.
1: cameron a, cameron yeah, known poetry hater cameron you heard ha- you heard yeah. that silence
0: yeah it's not really uh poetry you know what i like gone home though so maybe maybe i can you know i can meet you in the middle there uh (laughs) and that's out already right yes
1: no that's out uh already um it was out earlier this earlier this week as of this recording so delta head media on twitter you can find it there check it out um it was a good conversation and if you liked this you might like that i hope you do
0: (laughs) Uh, I, I also have a plug. I think I forgot to plug it on the past few episodes, but the, uh, science fiction film and television issue that I alluded to earlier in the episode, a lot of illusions I'm talking about here at the end of the episode, but, um, I co-edited, uh, uh, this issue <laughs> and, uh, it's about science fiction and games and, uh, a lot of really cool articles in it. We got some stuff about, I'm, I'm just, this is off the dome. So, this is not exhaustive, but we've got some stuff about 2001 and space and games. There's a piece on Ian M. Um, Banks and the Culture Series and Player of Games. There is a piece on Star Wars and the Star Wars role playing game and the, the kind of criticality of the Star Wars role playing game to Star Wars, Star Wars canon now in the films which is really interesting. Uh, There's a piece on existence and the X-Files. Oh, no, I'm sorry. uh, Existence and Star Trek and like moral panicky kind of stuff. Uh, There's one on citizen science um, and citizen science games. And there might be another one that I'm forgetting. I'm so sorry if I'm forgetting um, uh, anyone who's in there. Uh, The other thing that I want to mention, I've mentioned this everywhere, I think, but I I believe it should still be available is that um, we did a bunch of interviews with um darshana and i did a bunch of interviews with practitioners so uh uh we interviewed uh, uh Janth, we interviewed uh, austin walker we interviewed ruth booth and then suvik uh, Mukherjee um uh, suvik is as an academic so not quite in the same space but we just interviewed them about like what is the relationship between science fiction and games so you can read a lot of cool designers and people who are really reflective um about what how these things relate to one another you can read their straight up unvarnished thoughts about how that happens um and with suvik we get into kind of specific game genres and talking about um Uh, you know, the relationship between the post-colonial and science fiction and how those things work and how that gets replicated in games. So it's a really fascinating issue. Those interviews are um, open access right now. I encourage you to go and download them immediately. They won't be open access forever, but uh, right now they are. So you should go and download them. Well, Michael, where can people find you on the internet? Well, you can find me on uh, twitter.com at Warrenisdead. You can find me at C. Kunzelman, and uh, we'll be back in a month with another episode. What's the catchphrase?
1: We already said it once. Don't make us say it again. Oh, no, we're saying it again. Folks, the social is predicated upon its exclusions.